Billy Carson, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, man, for coming here. Hey, thank you. You are one of the most fascinating people to follow on Instagram. Wow. Your videos, all the things that you that you look into and talk about are just so, I mean, out there. A lot of it's really out there for me, but mm-hmm. it's it's just so fascinating. And I've I've often fallen down many rabbit holes watching your videos and wow. following your content. Thank you, man. How did that. you get into all this stuff? <laughs> you know, it's a real amazing story. Uh, we were living in New York. I was born in Queens, New York. Oh no way! Yeah, Queens General Hospital, 1971. And uh, my parents, you know, were having some issues there. My father was uh, having some some issues with drugs and alcohol. And they decided, you know, they had a great idea. Let's move to Miami. (laughs) So a lot of people from Queens end up down there. Yeah. So they went to the cocaine cowboy capital. (laughs) And uh, we get in Miami and uh, we live. We're living in, in the hood, in the ghetto, in Opelika. Uh, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. Hardcore back then, too. Like, we lived in the Bermuda Triangle part of Opelika, which was the steel gate that they put around the city to keep the crime on the inside. Oh. Uh, and as you know, there's Opelika Airport nearby. It was in the movie with uh, Martin Lawrence and uh, Will Smith, uh, Bad Boys. One yeah. of the Bad Boys. Oh, yeah. It was Bad Boys 2 or something. They used that airport uh, in, in the movie. But anyway, I would, I would go outside because back then, 70s, right? 1977. There's no uh, cable TV. There's no cell phones, no, no screens to look at, no tablets or anything. You go outside and you play. I'm outside looking at the airplanes go over, just observing how long it took for them to go from horizon to horizon. Like, you know, that was like the exciting thing of the day back then because we couldn't go and play out in the neighborhood because it, it was so much crime and killing going on. We could only either play in the backyard or in the front yard, and we couldn't leave the gate parameter left or right. If we pass that, we get in trouble. Uh, so I'm out there watching and I see this object go across and I'm like, it cleared the horizon in seconds, not minutes. It literally just, and I'm, I know I saw it. I'm like, I know I just saw something, but it was more of an oval, almost like an egg. It didn't have wings, a cockpit, didn't have a tail fin, didn't have anything that looked like a plane. And I'm just looking, 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 I'm searching, I'm scanning the sky for this thing and it comes back. But this time when it comes back, it's lower it's about maybe now I can estimate about 200 meters above my head and it's completely silent and it stops. It comes to an immediate stop and then it just stays there for like three or four seconds and it just takes off the way that it came in. And I was blown away. I was like, what did I just see? Now, back then the word UFO didn't exist for me. Flying saucer didn't exist. Aliens didn't even exist in my vocabulary yet. All I knew was I saw something that wasn't an airplane. So the next day I went to my school, Rainbow Park Elementary. We live four, four, yeah, four, four or five houses away from the school. I go to the school. I tell my teacher, my dad wants me to do a report because my dad always made me do book reports. I said, I need to go get some encyclopedias from the library because I'm researching something. She sent me to the library. I get the Encyclopedia Britannica on aerospace. I'm looking at swept wing, delta wing, ballistic, intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic. I'm looking at all these different types of uh, projects that we had for planes between United States, Russia, submarine uh, missiles that were sent from the ocean. I'm trying to find whatever I could see, and I saw nothing close to what I saw in my backyard. And that started me down this entire rabbit hole of research and investigation. I started with aerospace first. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No way. So that's what sparked this that's whole thing. How old were you? Seven years old. I had just turned seven. <laughs> you know what's crazy too is there's a there, there's a lot of reports of UFO sightings near schools. Yeah. I think there's the most of them are near schools. And I'm that's sure you're familiar right. with the Zimbabwe or was it? No, where was that? There, there was an Africa. It was in South Africa. There's one in Russia by a school. Yeah. Just, you're right. They're there's, by schools a lot. There's one famous one I was just talking to a guy about uh, that happened in Africa. I'm forgetting the name of the actual name of the school, but there was a actual like re- whole report of beings coming out of the craft and like telepathically communicating with the kids. Yeah. In broad daylight. In broad daylight. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> there's many, many yeah. um, accounts of UFO settings near schools. Yeah. Um, you said you were seven years old, yeah. eight years old, seven. Yeah. Seven. Wow. Crazy. So what was life like growing up down there? I was pretty tough. I mean, I can remember seeing the, uh, the yellow chalk, you know, in the, in the streets, you know, people getting shot, killed, stabbed, coming home and, and, uh, the cops would be all around because, uh, somebody stabbed somebody, a neighbor would rob another neighbor. I mean, it was just, it was wild. What does that do to to a seven year old growing up? Like, what is that? How does yeah. that affect you as you're maturing right. and entering your teenage years and all that? That's pretty tough. You know, I saw how it really for me, my brain was able to process things a little differently. I always thought I have to get out of here. I I need to get an escape. My brother, on the other hand, for example, who, who was only one year younger than me, born in the same month, uh, just a few days later. Um, you know, he ended up going down the other fork in the road, life of crime, uh, ended up doing 10 years in prison for attempted murder and ro- armed robbery and stuff like that. My sister, I saw how it affected her. She ended up, uh, was headed towards the Olympics, was a great runner, ended up, uh, you know, getting pregnant at a very early age and then moving out like I did at 16 and just kind of lost that. But she still became very successful later on, fortunately. But I just saw how it it rocked us. It it created a dysfunctional family situation, and it really messed us up mentally. For for whatever reason, for me, I never let it affect my 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 school studies. I was very studious. I was always looking and digging for more information and more knowledge. Studying and researching and, and reading books was my escape to another dimension, pretty mm, much. You know. Oh, really? That's how I escaped. I remember the encyclopedia salesman came to the door, uh, and you know, he used to go door to door back then. And offered my mom an entire set, um, like no credit, no nothing, and she just paid 30 bucks a month. She didn't have the money, but she took the set. The guy came back one time, never came back again. So I had this whole set of Encyclopedia Britannica because I had biology, psychology, physics, <laughs> economics. I mean, <laughs> that was for me. That was like my escape. Uh, and I knew that one day I would get out of that neighborhood because I, I realized uh, one thing. I had sold some toys that I had, some broken toys. I went door-to-door asking for donations. Because I had no money for the ice cream truck. Everybody was going to. I just wanted bubble gum. I couldn't get bubble gum. We couldn't even, even afford bubble gum. We were, eat, we were eating Cairo syrup and toast. Uh, wow. And, uh, you know, if we get some donations or some things from some neighbors, we'd have some food to eat. 
It was pretty tough pickings eating like, you know, cereal with water and stuff like that. And so I went door to door selling my toys. And uh, I took this famous picture that I had with like the change in the money in my hand that I had gotten. And I realized at that moment I had an epiphany like that was a moment that changed me because I realized I was going to save myself. I just knew it. I said, there's nobody coming to save me. It's going to be me that's going to get me out of the situation. And from that moment on, I was only seven. That was it. I realized I started putting plans in place, things in place and working on ideas and concepts that would help me in the future to escape that uh, that location, that place that I was in, which I eventually did. Were there any was there uh, any sort of mentor figures in your life that you could follow or follow in their footsteps or help guide you along this path and figure out the steps to get out of the situation you were in? Unfortunately, there was no human mentor and third dimension person. It was just the books that I was reading. I was reading books. I was devouring books like you wouldn't believe. I was, you know, reading, you know, know, real books, not like see Jack run and stuff like that. I was reading novels. You know, I remember uh, as a very young age reading um, Jack London, uh, the sea wolf and books like that. So just just understanding the perception and the concepts through some of the psychology books I was reading from, you know, and stuff like that. I was like, okay, I was getting it Mm. at a young age, fortunately. And one thing that my father did do, he he made me do book reports every single week since I was little. And so those book reports, it's not like you read something and you just, okay, you, it, it, a lot of people forget they have no comprehension, no reading comprehension. But when you right. do a book report, it forces reading comprehension. So I was right. comprehending. So that, that regimen of doing all those book reports for all those years, every single week, it developed in me this ability to comprehend what I was reading. And be analytical and be able to ask questions and then be able to ask myself a question and then go research my own question and find the answer to that question. So that really helped me. That was one of the best things he ever did for me, which is why I dedicated my second book to him. At what point did you become so fascinated in like ancient civilizations and cosmology and Mm -hmm. and all of this kind of stuff? It's really interesting. So I really, at an early age, I was interested in it. I wasn't fascinated yet. I was like, the pyramids and, you know, the seven wonders of the world, because I was reading books about it. And I was like, wow, I'd like to see these one day. But it wasn't this burning passion desire yet. It didn't really happen for me until uh, much later. I think it was, uh, let's see, Justin right now, my my youngest son is 20, going to be 23 soon. So it was been 25 years ago. I was looking into, you know, pyramids and structures, and I realized that these things seem technological in some kind of way, the way that they're constructed. I started really understanding that we could we didn't have the technological capability right now to duplicate some of these things. So I said, I got to go somewhere. I need to go somewhere to see something that's ancient, that's built. And that's not going to cost me that much money because I didn't have a lot at the time. And that was kind of close. First time leaving the country, I went to Mexico, I went to Chichen Itza in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, and so I flew into Mexico uh, and, and I was I thought I was rich because I converted 500 bucks American back then into uh, Mexican pesos. And I had all this money. And then a sandwich cost like a hundred bucks. And I said, Oh, I'm not rich. <laughs> but I went, I went down there in that bus through the jungle to get to Chichen Itza. And then this whole, you know, incredible place opens up when you get there and you see it. And you know, I was just like blown away. I climbed the pyramid of Kukulkan, which you can't do anymore. Mm. They've stopped people from doing that now because unfortunately something has happened with some tourists defecating up there. Some crazy thing. Jesus. But uh, I took a picture, a famous picture of myself at the top of that. 
And I just realized, wow, this is what I really want to do. I want to travel the world and see these things. Yeah. Much later, though, in about 2010, I had this very strange experience, which it took a long time to talk about it because it's such a it was a bad experience for me in some ways. In some ways, it was good. In some ways, it was, some ways it was bad. It was like one of the catalysts for my divorce. Well, even one of my sons is still kind of, uh, you know, um, standoffish because of it. But I had this experience in the house where, from my perspective, sitting there watching ESPN Sports about 9 o'clock p.m., the room turned lavender. I looked over my left shoulder. The TV shut off, too. I looked over my left shoulder. I thought my boys were playing a trick on me. When I turned back, two what you would describe as gray aliens were in front of my face. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I tried to scream. No sound was coming out of my throat. Uh, they, Whatever they were doing was making my brain shake in my skull. And then as fast as that happened, they just turned around and they kind of dangled away. They don't even walk like a regular walk. It was like a dangle. I can't really explain it. And then the lights came back. The TV came back. I ran around the house frantic. Nobody heard or saw anything. It scared the hell out of everybody, especially my wife at the time. Uh, she had just about had enough. That was <laughs> like the last straw. I didn't talk about it for a long time. I didn't, never went public with it until probably, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago or so. Because I really got nothing out of it but negativity. But I felt like it was a time for to start explaining this. And the reason why I'm bringing it up now, based on your question, is because one thing that the part that was good out of that situation was this phrase worldwide telescope was burning in my mind over and over again. It just came out of nowhere. Worldwide telescope, worldwide telescope, worldwide telescope. I get up, I go on my computer, I go to excite.com. Cause back then Google wasn't the main one yet. <laughs> what year was this? This is a 2010. Okay. I type in uh worldwide telescope and then worldwide telescope.org is the first search result. I almost fell out of my chair. I click on it. You back then you had to download the software and install it. Now you can just use it without installing. It's an option because HTML5 is out now, so you can do both. But anyway, I installed the software. I open it up. It gives you the sky view. You can go into two mass infrared mode, all these different satellite modes. It gives you all the space probe data for all the missions that have ever gone off into space from Earth. And it gives you access to the data and also the rover images. But from the perspective of the rovers on Mars, and it's, it's all publicly available. Taxes paid for all this. And so you log in. I saw, I saw okay, uh, Mars. Interesting. Let me click on Mars. Then I from Mars, I go and I see um, I see uh, Panorama. I go, okay. Then I see Rovers. I go, Rovers? Well, the Rovers are in here? I click on Opportunity Rover. Now I'm on the mast cam, and I'm zooming in, zooming out, panning left and right. And I started seeing anomalies. But the anomalies that I was seeing, to answer your question, are things that looks similar to ancient structures on earth. And I go, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Is this really Mars? So I start downloading these images and screenshotting them and analyzing them. And they're really Mars images hosted on Caltech servers. Some are on Washington.edu. Uh, and I'm like, this is incredible. So I start comparing to now I've got a really crazy passion for this because now I'm hunting down every ancient site and trying to see how, how do these sites connect to what I'm seeing going on on Mars? And then I came across the Enuma Elish and the seven tablets of creation from ancient Samaria. And it talks about they had beings named the Ejiji living on Mars, running a concurrent civilization that was on Earth and both on Mars. And that just blew me away. And from there, I just dove headfirst into the whole thing. So this was immediately after you had this encounter or sighting yeah. in your living room? Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> and y so you had just 
this idea of what was it called? What's this website Worldwide called? Worldwide Telescope. That's it. Burning that's it in right your there. mind. Yeah. So well, you think? It, what do you think? Do you do you think that they were trying to communicate this to you to go find this stuff? That's the only thing I could think of. They didn't give me anything like a telepathic that I could understand in terms of words, like the English right. language. But my brain was shaking in my skull, like it was it was painful. And then it just stopped, and then they just left. But that phrase just over and over, thousands of times. Now, when you said the the room turned a specific color and the TV went off, yeah, it turned lavender. Turned TV, lavender. And the TV went whoop, shut did, right off. Did anybody else ex- uh, hear nope. the TV go off or or see the, the house, color change? Listen to this. The house was full. I had two daughters in the, two rooms on the uh, east wing, uh, three boys on the west wing, and their rooms upstairs. It was a split floor plan. Wife at the time in the master bedroom, first floor behind the living room on the other side of the wall that I was sitting in a family room. And nobody heard, saw anything. Nobody came out of their rooms. Nobody saw anything. All they did was get frantic and scared, and it caused all kind of problems, arguments. It caused they got frantic nightmares. and scared because you because you told them about it immediately. Yeah. yeah, and I was I was like, I was hyped. <laughs> you know, what I mean, it just happened to me. What had just happened was totally unreal, like in a real close encounter uh, of the fifth kind, and uh, it just freaked everybody out. It was a it was a you know. It's still today. My son says, my son Giovanni he says, you know. I'm afraid to go to your house. And that's still, and he's 27 now. Is this the only time anything like this has happened to you besides the using that UFO in your front yard when you were seven? That's it. Only time. Yeah, it never happened again. Yeah. But I've been on this path of discovery into ancient civilizations ever since based on what I saw on there. And since I've come across that worldwide telescope, I put together a team of anomaly hunters and we actually hunt space anomalies through most of this data. And we've downloaded now over 1 million images from NASA, Caltech, Washington, IDU, and all the other space, European Space Agency, India Space Agency, and the Russian Space Agency. And we've catalog, cataloged over 60,000 space anomalies, most of which a lot of them have made the news, CNN, Fox, you name it. They've been on TV and everything. To you, what are the most astounding anomalies or photos that are on Mars that, that oh, really man. blow your mind? There's so many. But and is there a way we can see them on here? Uh, yeah. Maybe you could probably go in. So if you go to... Um, Hey, we're that on looks Mars. Like Mars. We're on Mars. Now, you see that rock on the right right there? Yeah. Let's zoom in over there. <clears throat> this one right here? Yeah. Zoom in pretty close to that one. Let me see if this is. Oh, to the right, a little bit more to the right. Okay, zoom in over there. Wow, this is pretty incredible, the, yeah. the resolution of this. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. You'll see an anomaly right there, first of all. You see this one on the left right there? But next left of the X of, of the plus sign, I'm sorry. Yeah. That is not a rock. Sitting on top of the flat one, you mean? Looks like a seagull almost sitting there? Well, uh, no, you see that big triangular shape? Yes, yes. That's not a rock. It's got uh, it's got symmetry. It has three open places on it. If you zoom out just a tiny here, I don't know if you can do that. Yeah. So you can see, now look at the surrounding terrain outside of this, deb- what looks like debris up there. Right. That particular object doesn't appear to be a, a rock from the surrounding terrain. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, I've never seen a rock. So you have to compare what rocks look like to an earth. I've just never seen a rock that just stands up like that and has that type of shape and has mm. a type of structure to it. Now, if you were able to take that and pull it into a photo program and really zoom in, in close with an actual magnifying glass, because when you use a magnifying glass, you don't lose the resolution like you right. do when you're zooming in with computer zoom. Right. And so then all of a sudden you begin to see 
all you know all the aspects of the anomaly. So that was some that that's something that we would catalog as an anomaly. Now, if you zoom out, let's show you. See if I can find one more in this area because I haven't been here in a long yeah, time. Yeah, but there's there's like a whole like like cluster of, of all, all that's all debris. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All that stuff there is actually artificial. A lot of that stuff is not rock or not rocks. Uh, if you scroll, when you through, say artificial, what yeah. do you mean specifically? In other words, I think that some of that stuff is uh, broken pieces of something. You know, there was a global flood on Mars. Mm -hmm. And uh, the evidence of this is a lot of the things that we do find appear to be partially submerged in some of the sand or, or, or what looks like <clears> wet <throat> sand. We know that there is mud there. And now we also know that there's billions of tons of liquid water because they've announced it officially. Couldn't it be, could not be fragmented parts of a comet or an asteroid? It, it's possible. It's possible, but it's very so it hard. It looks you like there's kind of a crater behind it. Well, that's actually not a crater. That's just a little bit of a an area behind the hill. That's like okay. when you come up that little hill, it's actually not even that steep of a hill. Yeah. And that area behind it's not that large. There's a measuring tool that you have in there, too, that you can measure okay. a lot of the size of this stuff. Right. That thing right there is only like four or five feet tall, that piece there. But if you scroll to the right more, there's a piece sticking out of a hill. Let me see if I can find it again. It's been a long time. Look at that little shiny area, like that's, white. That's water and and uh, and frozen. That's frozen water, basically. How much water did you say there's there is on Mars? They've now found billions of tons of liquid water, and they've officially announced it. They actually is this underneath the surface, or no? Where? They found a surface lake, 12, 12, uh, 12 hectare uh, acre, twelve hectares lake. They found. They've also found other pools of water, and they even showed on a NASA press release on video during the day. I think it was about four years ago, water coming down the side of a mountain. Really? Yeah. So there's, <clears throat> there's a lot of water there. I'll keep going a little bit more. Yeah, I'm just going by memory. Okay, zoom mm -hmm. in right there where your arrow is, where your, where your cur cursor was. I'm sorry. Yeah, right there. Yep, right on that thing. Zoom in there. Now, that's interesting. Yeah, it's in a similar rock to the other one, right? It looks almost the same. It's pretty similar, but it's, it's something that's sticking out of the side and hanging over the ledge of a hill. Now... Um, if you look at the back piece, well, on a rec on an image program, you can see that the, that it's connected. It's just mm. really, really dusty. Yeah. But there's something connect connects that whole piece at the top on that hill. Again, just another anomaly. Again, yeah. it's hard to find rocks that are shaped like that. Mm. Um, it doesn't match the surrounding terrain. You can see the front piece of it to the left, almost at the edge of the screen at the top left, right there. Yeah, a little bit more over. That's the that's it's one connected piece. Interesting. Yeah. Now, is there any objects that look like they were um, man-made or anything that like what would you say on here resembles things that we have on Earth besides these rocks? I mean, this all is, these these just look like rocks to me. Yeah, we got to go through a whole bunch of rover images. So if we go back out, we'll have to go find another another uh, panorama. What is that? Is that Bigfoot? <laughs> It's a weird thing. It's a what weird is object. that? Yeah, if you click on it, you can probably hope that they get bigger when you click on them. Oh, that one stays okay. kind of small. But that's an object um, that is really bizarre. Again, you look at the surrounding terrain, it didn't seem to match. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it went viral. This one made the news and everything. It made all the mainstream news channels. And what happened? So go to that link, that NASA link to the right. I want to see what this looks like. Yeah. So this is the source photo of that. Yeah. And this is an area zoomed in. So, yeah. so somewhere in here, we somewhere have to where's Waldo? And you can see that. Yeah, you'll have to zoom and find it and it's in there. Yeah. I mean, this will take us forever. We don't. Yeah, Holy crap. That's crazy. The... <laughs> Look at that resolution. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. 
That is incredible. Yeah. It takes us hours to find the anomalies because we literally scan centimeter by centimeter. You know, we take an image that big and you go centimeter by centimeter with your uh, magnifying glass. Yeah. Go to some of the other photos on the Facebook. To you, what is the mo- what stands out the most out of all of these anomalies? Okay, go forward. Go forward. Even that's a four-mile-wide face, but these tubes are amazing. They've been on the news. These tubes run for miles. They're huge. They're massive. They, um, they, they actually are these tubes that run in and out and all around the planet in certain areas, uh, and they're hollow on the inside, and they're not rocks, clearly. And uh, what's interesting is if you see where that arrow is, down from the arrow, you see where two tubes kind of almost run into each other. They have these ribbed type stru- things right. that are keeping the tubes, uh, the structure open. So it's hollow on the inside. The purpose of it, nobody has a, nobody has a clue. Huh. Yeah. And they run for miles. Uh, go what do it. you speculate they are? I think they're just a transportation or, or navigation underneath. Everything, for me, I think to make, it makes sense to build under, underground there. Really? This is the first thing that I found. This is my very first anomaly. Now, look at this. All I did was I just pulled out the anomaly and blew it up. I just you know spread it out. There's no enhancement. There's no anything. But I'm labeling them. One looks to be on the left, looks like technology. The other thing looks like a, a sphinx type of an object. And the other mm. thing looks like, again, more technology. Just in my eyes, what I see there, in the background, it could be a, a, a pyramid. I don't know. But to me, these things don't look like they belong in that area. There's even something to the far right underneath that left arrow that <clears> is also <throat> anomalous. Um, if you go to another one. What's that doing on Mars? That's not a rover. NASA, when we've emailed them, they said they don't know what it is. They is that, said, "Is that the actual size, or is it supposed to be magnified in that circle?" It's magnified. It's up there in the right corner. See it up there in the right corner. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's sitting right out there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hang on. Pull up that the that NASA link in the description, Austin. See if we can find this one. Okay, it's right there. That's the, you got to zoom in a little bit more somehow. Yeah. Can't zoom in any farther? No. Your technology won't allow you? Yeah. 2022. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that is uh, that is strange, isn't it? That's strange. Now, what can you, I mean, that, that, anybody who sees something like this for the first time, they're going to go crazy. And they're going to dig into this stuff. And this was one more I got to show you before we go on. I, want, I yeah. don't want to wait. We can extend this if we have to. Look, mm, yeah, go absolutely. Down, go down right there. Click on uh, above, up, up right there. Now, what's that doing on Mars? That's the last image taken by Spirit Rover before it went offline and never broadcast another image ever again. When was this taken? That Spirit Rover's last image. That was probably about uh, maybe almost 10 years ago now. Uh, Click on the let's let's look at the uh, source link from NASA's website. Oh, they took it off. Oh wow, <laughs> it's not on there anymore. They took it down. Yeah, that is incredible looking, right? It almost looks like a like a DeLorean with like a camping traveler uh, yeah. thing on top. It's weird, and if you see the shadow out of the back, you know I can only relate that to like a turret, a gun turret. Yeah, that's that just, is that is wild. wild. Yeah, that, and that's huge. You know, so. 
there's even a, a, what, a thing up there that looks like an airplane, which is on this same photo file. So the pro, like, I am so fascinated by this stuff. But the problem is, you could spend so much time on these websites looking at this stuff and finding this stuff, but you can't do anything with it. Yeah, all well, you can do is just like blow people's minds but no one will take it seriously well you know i think it's actually has been taken seriously because now there are literally millions of people following us on the anomaly pages that we have in anomaly groups some groups have 140 150,000 people in each group and these people have now become researchers and digging into it but what it does for me it verifies the fact that anomalies are there that are unexplainable even though we're not there they don't look like rocks even nasa says they don't know where they are if you read the Enuma Elishan, the Seven Tablets of Creation or the Atra Hasis Epic, when they talk about the EGG occupying and living on Mars with advanced technology and visiting and going back and forth from Mars to Earth, this, to me, verifies that story in the ancient Sumerian tablets. Okay, those um, tablets that you just... I don't even know what you yeah. just said. But the <laughs> Enuma Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation, one of the most... Enuma Elish, okay. The Bible is... Uh, uh, um, plagiarized from the old testament is plagiarized from the enuma elish oh a lot okay. of the old testament is coming from there but they kept out a lot of the stuff talking about <laughs> you know beings living on other planets uh in the modern day bible god is actually mistranslated as god singular when in true reality when you go to the back into the ancient text it's really gods with an s they took off the s to make it the monotheistic mindset Mm. And uh, and then you realize that it's when you read the Enuma Elish and the Atrahasis epic, you realize that they copied all that ancient text and put it into a lot of it into the uh, Old Testament of the modern day Bible. So is this all written in stone? Yeah, it's all written in stone. These are literal stone tablets. Stone tablets. Cuneiform stone tablets. I've done lectures on this stuff. I've done a 12 hour lecture just on the Enuma Elish, 12 hours just on the Atrahasis. How, now you, how did you get your hands on these things, or did you just did you just read them from images from of them, or how did? Now here's the beautiful thing: these have been translated since the 1800s. So Cambridge and the British Museum have translations, and then UCLA did an amazing thing. There's over a million tablets that have now been you know out there, and they've got hundreds of thousands translated. UCLA cataloged all the tablets digitally online. And made an online tablet translator called the UCLA CDLI Cuneiform Digital Library. And you can go there and take a tablet off the shelf and drop it into a translator and read it for yourself. No way. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Oh, yeah. And you did this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've done this. <laughs> I've been to the British Museum in person as well. I've been to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, England as well, and looked at these tablets with my own eyes. And I've got pictures of me obviously, obviously standing next to them, but they're real tablets. And I've done lectures on this for the last, I don't know, four or five years. These tablets are amazing because this is as close as we're going to get to the truth. And they're talking about beings living in other planets, coming to this planet, engaging mankind, teaching mankind about weapons, war, genetically modifying humans to, for the purpose of turning us into slaves to do a lot of the labor for them. And uh, living on Mars. And How many years ago were these tablets created, apparently, or supposedly? Oh, the last, the most recent version is back around 6,000 to 7,000 years ago, which is why, there goes the translator site, which is why the uh, the Bible, people who believe in the Bible believe the Earth is only 6,000 years old because the cop, the story is copied from 6,000-year-old tablets. That's, when, that's the beginning of the creation of the Earth is in the Enuma Elish. 
that's actually the creation of our entire solar system is in there. The Earth is just a small part. What civilization was six thousand years ago? Sumerian. The Sumerians. The Sumerians. And those yes. were those were the first humans. No, they weren't the first humans, but it was the beginning of the beginning or, of, of of like of organized. Yeah, civilization. It wasn't even really the beginning. Beginning. It was just as far <laughs> back as we can go. Now we can go back a little further. As of recent, because of Gobekli Tepe and Derun Kuyu in in Turkey, we know now mm. thirteen thousand years. But like the official narrative of the yeah. history of humanity was a was around two hundred thousand years ago. Is that right? And that was supposed to be the Stone Age. Homo, Homo sapien right. shows up all of a sudden out of nowhere, right? Uh, and then within a short period of time, you know, obtains and learns all this knowledge. According to the book of Enoch, which is one of the apocryphal books left out of the Bible, but he's important because he's mentioned in the Bible. Enoch. Uh, Enoch. Okay. The book of Enoch. Uh, these beings came from heaven to earth. And then they even named, they have names. They taught them how, taught human beings how to technology, how to make weapons, how to, how to even uh, create, make beer and all this other crazy stuff. Uh, and then they took Enoch on a trip to the Earth's atmosphere and beyond. And he saw the Earth and the shape of the planet as a sphere and how he saw that he was living on a giant ball and then brought him back. Yeah, this is all in the book of Enoch. The only Bible that has the book of Enoch in it is the Ethiopian Bible. It's the only Bible in the world that actually incorporated the book of Enoch into their canonized text. The rest of the Bibles uh, omitted the book of Enoch. And um, the wars of these gods can be found in the book of Deuteronomy. The wars of the gods, they, these, are, these, are, these are the Atlantean wars that everybody's trying to figure out what happened. It's in the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible. The, all the wars are right there. <laughs> but you say a lot of this was omitted from the Bible, right? Yeah, but the Deuteronomy is actually in there. The Deuteron- and, and so what is the Deuteronomy? It's a book in the Bible. It's a book in the Bible, okay. The modern day Bible, anybody can go open their Bible and go, oh, Deuteronomy, let me read this. They don't mm-hmm. read it, especially in Bible study. But the reason why is because you have God, which is actually God's plural, going to war against other gods in other towns and cities and other regions of the planet and sending human beings to these places to go to battle and sending angels with them with battle gear on to fight and kill. And the words are, go there, get in, kill the women, kill the children, kill the animals if need be. And if you see any women that you like, you can rape them. These are the exact words used. I want you to get a Bible and look it up. And if you decide you rape them, if you decide you want to keep them as wife, you can take them. But bring the spoils of war back to me. This was these internal battles going on from from one region of the world to another region of the world, stealing and fighting over humans and resources. These people have become so evil fighting against each other and utilizing human beings as chattel. And that's all in the book of Enoch. So God is good and loving and all, and he's all the same all the time. But all of a sudden you read the book of Enoch and you go, what's going on? You know, the, book, the book of Deuteronomy, you read the book of Deuteronomy, you go, what's, what's going on here? These aren't exactly the stories that, uh, you know, described. I don't think it's talking about the creator of the universe in that book. So, okay. I want to kind of like, <laughs> I want to kind of, I want to unpack this in kind of like a linear timeline of yeah. your personal discovery of yeah. this. So you had that experience. Mm-hmm. In your living room, yeah, you decided to go on the telescope website, the global telescope, and find all these things. At yeah. what point did you decide become aware of these ancient texts and go translate them and learn about them? When I started googling and trying to find if anybody was looking at these anomalies, mm-hmm. I came across information about the Anunnaki. That's the name of the beings that 
according to the ancient text, came from heaven to earth. In the, in, in the Egyptian culture, they call them the Naturu. And they said they came to earth and turned mud into a kingdom. In the Bible, they call them the Anak. They have these names in all different cultures. They all show up around the same time in every culture. And I started going, I started finding more instances, more instances of them. In every culture I looked into around the same time period. And I go, these people really came here at some point in the distant past. It seems to be now around 450,000 years ago they arrived. And about 200,000 years ago, according to the text, not me, they started genetically tinkering with human beings, saying they were adding their essence to them to get us to do the labor for them. So around 200,000 years ago, they started tinkering with us. And there's a famous cylinder scroll and with some text at the British Museum with Isis, the goddess Isis, who was one of the original Sumerian pantheon, not Egyptian, Sumerian. And she's holding up a baby. And she says the first Adamu, which means first man, my hands have created it. And she claims to have taken in the text, taken this baby to term for 10 months in her own womb to create the more modern version of Homo sapien sapien. Okay, so so what is, in your description, what, what was the Anunnaki? The Anunnaki, well, the term itself means those who came from heaven to earth. And these Anunnaki okay. are beings that came from outside of earth to earth, from many different places, potentially. Uh, just like if you were to travel to Mars, right, and you met a Martian, they say, where are you from? You say, I'm an earthling. You wouldn't say I'm from Tampa. Right, right, right. So it's the same thing. It's a generalized mm -hmm. term. And so, but these Anunnaki, these are the original Atlantean people. They created an Atlantean civilization. How do I know this? The tablets, the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, which is my first book is about the Emerald Tablets. It's a bestseller right now. It's number one out of three million books on Amazon. Why? Because it's talking about the, the gentleman that ruled over the land of Kem before it was called Egypt for 14,000 years. He left behind these tablets that he authored himself. He didn't have a scribe write them back in the day. It was typical. If you were considered a god, you would have a scribe write your work. He wrote them himself. He talks about the Great Flood. He talks about civilization declining and having to be brought back to a high level. He talks about all this stuff in the Emerald Tablets. And it's, he covers everything from A to B. He talks about having technology in the Emerald Tablets. Mm. He has a ship that doesn't sail in the ocean. It flies into the sky until the earth disappears, until he gets to a, the place appointed, and then it descends from the sky back down to the land. This is 36,000-year-old text. And what's interesting about this text, where Jesus is talking in the Bible, you know, quoted as being saying things in the New Testament of the Bible, I have side by side the verses from, from the Bible and the verses from both the Atlantean. Guess what? They're the same. Mm. But which came first, the chicken or the egg? One is 2,000 years old and the other one is uh, 36,000 years old. Yeah. Well, you know, the fascinating thing, I've had um, Randall Cars Carlson on here and he, you know, he told me all about um, – the uh, the you know the great floods the younger dryest cataclysm younger that dryest. happened i think it was like 12,500 years ago yes uh, which was a series it was a there's it's actual there's actual scientific geological evidence mm -hmm. of a series of cataclysms that happened yeah. that could have been comets could have been you know volcanoes there's a multitude of uh, things but mm -hmm. you know the i think the evidence points to mostly it was it was comets series of comets from mm -hmm. the torrid meteor stream yeah that came and and wiped out a majority of living species on Earth, mm -hmm. um, and he, you can see that through not only geological evidence mm -hmm. um, with the black mat layers of yeah. ash that are frozen underneath ice, mm -hmm. but there's also um, there's also evidence from when they look at the climate on Earth from throughout history. Yeah, you can look at the ice it, cores, the ice cores, right? Yes. They I think they they drilled like miles of ice cores yeah. in Antarctica. Yes. 
you can see several global floods that happened. Several. Yeah. So the Younger Dryas is just one. Of Which is apparently several. the most recent one, right? The most recent one is the okay. Younger Dryas. It decimated the entire ice sheet, sending water and mass of ice into the oceans, creating a global flood. Which would have been the, the the most recent flood that we've had, even all the way down to Africa, to the tip of Africa, this thing created floods. Which is why I believe the Sphinx mm-hmm. is much older than we think, because the Sphinx couldn't have been built twelve thousand years ago. Uh, it had to be built prior to that uh, Younger Dryas era. Mm. Another fascinating thing, um, going back to evidence of this of the, the evidence proving that the timeline, the official narrative of the timeline of these civilizations, especially when it comes to ancient Egypt, yeah. is way off. Um, yes. There is, I had this guy, Ben, ben Van uh, Kirkwick, Ben Van Kirkwick, he has a YouTube channel called Uncharted X. Okay. And he goes to, uh, he basically discovered this evidence in Egypt of these basalt rocks and these pieces of granite yeah. that have been clearly machined. Mm-hmm. Um, with there's like core drills, like yes. perfectly circular cores taken out of this rock mm-hmm. and on like the, the Mohs scale of hardness of like the hardest and softest rocks on earth. Yeah. These are like the top three hardest rocks that exist right. on earth. And even today it would be extremely difficult for us to carve these stones with right. the tools that we have today. Right. Um, and these like perfectly, there's these giant like eight ton rocks that look like they were cut with it, it looks like it was a hot knife cutting through butter mm-hmm. with how perfect they are and how yeah. perfectly symmetrical they are. Yeah, it's incredible. Some of this evidence is is astounding and yeah. it can't even be explained. In yeah. addition to that, there's there's pottery that is made out of these rocks mm-hmm. that is perfect. It looks like it was pottery that was thrown on a wheel, yeah. but it's the hardest stones that exist on earth. Yeah, incredible because those stones can only be cut with those stones or diamonds. Right, exactly. Yes, I know. <laughs> and it, that... That's the first time I became aware of actual physical evidence that cannot be explained by modern science right. or academia. Yeah. And they, they don't really entertain the conversation right. when people try to talk about it or people try to confront them about it. Yeah, because it goes against the standard quo, the, 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 the theory or the theme that they've already set up. And this is the way we want to have it. This is the way we want to say it. Because if we change it now... It's going to create so many questions, and it's going to also destroy a lot of careers. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's the problem with yeah. it, right? There's a people have there's a lot that's tied up when it yeah. comes to money, especially when it comes to like governments yeah. that rely, like in Egypt. Mm-hmm. I know that a, a huge part of their revenue stream is tourism. Yeah, um, and that relies that relies <laughs> on telling the story of yeah. you know the ancient Egyptians. Mm-hmm. How many times have you been to Egypt? Four times. Four times. Yeah. I wow. just took a tour there. Seventy people. I just got back. Wow. Yeah. So I had the largest tour ever taken through uh, those sites. We had VIP access. I was the tour guide. I'm the speaker. They gave us access. You know, they cleared Giza out. Everybody out. Forbidden knowledge is here. We had private access to the to the grand gallery of the of the pyramid. We're in there meditating. We're going underneath the pyramid, going in shafts, going into the queen's chamber private access to the great Sphinx military guards to go down there and actually got to some of the underground uh, shafts that exist that the, mm. that the Sphinx that people don't even know exist. They're there. Those, I've seen photos. It's yeah. pretty wild, wild stuff, man. Why wow, they go way down. You can't even see the bottom. Uh, and then we will be able to stand in, in the middle of the Sphinx's paws and touch the dream Stella. You know, it's pretty cool. So I took my whole, the whole crew, everybody who came, we took them down there. They had a great time and, took them out into the desert to Dendera, into hidden crypts that were never opened before. 
I took him to a temple uh, of Isis on the property of Dendera, which has been locked for 30 years. And the temple priest gave me the key to open it and let my people in. And we saw technology on the wall, jet pillars with cable, electrical cables connected to what looked like light bulbs in pristine mm. condition. Not the ones underneath the underground crypt at Dendera, but that everybody knows on TV, but the ones that nobody's ever seen before they're in there. So we had a, a great, great trip, and we, I showed him evidence of technology all over the place, including the Temple of Seti at Abydos with the helicopter, the tank, uh, you know, the airplane, and the uh, and it looks like a submarine in the hieroglyphs, and it just blew, blew everybody away. Yeah, Austin, maybe you can pull up some of uh, the Uncharted X photos of some of the some of the stones that are out there. But I mean, he was talking about in some of these pyramids. I think he was talking about one of the main ones was the Sakura. Sakara, yes. Sakara, yes. yeah, and there's like these eight to ten ton granite boxes that yes. are in there that are like perfectly symmetrical and smooth, incredible, Absolutely and incredible. One of the things that he said that really stood out to him was on these giant granite boxes that mm -hmm. are that looked like they are created by some sort of super advanced technology. Mm -hmm. The hieroglyphs look like it was kindergartners that yeah. just found this and just started carving stuff into it because <laughs> it looks like stone chisels right. were used to carve these hieroglyphs. Yeah. But it's not the same way of, it's not the same technology. No. Somebody found it much later and started playing around with it, which happens. A lot, of, a lot of the stuff in Egypt in the dynastic era was already there when the dynastic, that dynastic era started. So a lot of the things that are really super megalithic and really old were there. They inherited those things. If you go to Mexico, where the Teotihuacan complex is located, which is a mirror of the Giza plateau with the three pyramids lining with Orion, the pyramid of the sun, pyramid of the moon, and so forth, though that stru those structures were there before the Mayans got there. And even the Mexicans will tell you that the Mayans inherited what was they they built nothing. They even teach wow. that in the university. They built nothing. Matter of fact, the Mayans didn't know who built that stuff, so they named them Teotihuacan. That's where the name came from. But when you go to the ancient text, you find out who built it. Thoth the Atlantean, who ruled over the land of Kem, ancient Egypt, he left because he was battling with his brother, Marduk, in the Bible. But Marduk is also known to the Egyptians as Amun-Ra. This is why people say amen at the end of every prayer. He's the one who said, at the end of every thank giving thanks, you say my name. That's where amen comes from. He left because of battling with his brother, and he went to Mesoamerica, and he took Olmecs with him. And they kickstarted and built the Teotihuacan civilization. So the evidence is all there. It's all in tablets. Uh, so what was his name? What the Atlantean? How do you say it? T H O T H. Thoth. Thoth. Some people say Toth or Thoth. I call him Thoth. Uh, in Sumerian, he's known as Nigazita. In the Mexico or the Mesoamerican area, like uh, you know Teotihuacan and Chichen Itza, he's known as Kukulcan, <clears throat> Lord Pakal, Veracocha. Um, he's the Flying Serpent. You know all these different names. Just like in Greek Greece, he's known as Hermes. In mm. Rome, he's known as Mercury, uh, Odin. If you go to the Library of Congress, there's two gigantic doors, and they have Thoth the Atlantean on one side and Odin on the other. They know who this guy is. And he's how a, many years ago was he, apparently, <clears throat> according to the texts? Oh, 54,000 uh, B.C. is when he was ruling over the land of Kem. Which is how many years ago from today? Oh, that's a long time, man. Like, We're talking about 56,000 years ago. Yeah, fifty six thousand. Fifty six thousand. <laughs> yeah. In in his tech in his tablets he says he went to the land of Kem to re kickstart civilization after the flood. Means it was already at a high level before the flood, or whatever disaster happened, the temple was coming up out of the mud and he went and rebuilt. Then he said, I built the Great Pyramid, pattern after Earth's force. So he takes claim to building the Great Pyramid. 
Hmm. It wasn't Khufu. Right. It wasn't Khufu. Yeah, it definitely was not the dynastic Egyptians no. that built that. There's, they there's, inherited it. Why don't you think that like modern academia and people in in the quote unquote Egyptologists, mm -hmm. why don't won't they entertain any of these conversations? You know, it's just now starting to be entertained by Egyptologists. When I go to Egypt, I'm famous. The Egyptologists flock to me. Really? They ask for autographs. They take photos with me. The photos are all online. I'm like, everywhere I go in Egypt, I'm famous because I'm saying the things that they want to say. We did a live podcast on the Nile, and the Egyptologist was there. And she said, we love Billy because he's saying the things that we are we can't say or we'll lose our jobs. And we believe everything he's saying. We 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 know this for a fact. We 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 we've learned grew up learning about this thing, the right the real truth about our history, but we can't speak it to the general population or we're in big trouble. And so that's why they love me there. But they've already adopted it. The Egyptologists, uh, the homegrown ones have already adopted this information. The foreign ones haven't. But the big problem with this information is that it's detrimental to the system and the status quo. It literally would break down religious systems overnight. You're talking about a multi-trillion dollar system that generates a lot of money for a lot of people. And those religious systems donate a lot of money to poly, I call it polytrix. Polytricks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm talking about millions of dollars a year. Right. And so all of a sudden that goes away. A religious system collapse globally would definitely affect the global economy almost overnight. But that will go away because people realize the information that they have been brought up learning is actually severely inaccurate and that the information is based on plagiarized tablets and the real stories are in the tablets. A full unedited, undoctored human, when well, I'm going to change these words around here and there, you know, that's not done in the tablets. The tablets is what it says. When you come to the Bible, all of a sudden you get to a lot of texts like Jesus saying, honor your slave master as you would honor me. Do you think that just guy would really say something like that if he's all this light and he's a light being and he's all about love and, 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 you know, salvation. And he's telling you now, no, you better obey that slave master. Come on. That's not, that's somebody, you know, let me write this in there because it's going to benefit us. When you write this in, we can tell the slaves, Hey, you see what Jesus said? You better, you better listen to Jesus. So this is a lot of twisting and turning. The Bible is a remix is what it really is. Yeah. You know, and so all of a sudden you bring this real information, all this stuff collapses overnight. We're talking about a multi-trillion dollar control system gone like that. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's sort of similar to what happened when the dynastic Egyptians found these structures and carved new pharaohs' faces in them and changed the names? Right. Same thing. If we sat in here, if we say we had 10 more people in this room. And we sat in a circle and I whispered something into one person's ear and said, hmm. take it around the entire. When it gets back to my other ear, right. the story ain't going to be exactly the same. The It'll classic, be close, but it won't be the same. telephone game. Right. Wow, man. Right. Wow. That is fascinating. That's why I love the tablets because I know I'm not saying they're 100% accurate, but they're as close as I can possibly get. I'm taking out all these other steps in between that have happened between Islam and Christianity and Buddhism and all these other religions that have taken from the same tablets. Mm -hmm. And now I'm getting as close as possible to the original source as I possibly can. You know, so I'm, I'm reducing some of the error, uh, you know, effect there. Yeah. What do you think would happen if people became aware or if, if people suddenly realized like hypothetically one of these UFOs landed on the, on the quote unquote white house lawn, like right. they say, <laughs> what would happen to society? Would it really fall apart? What would be the implications of something like this happening? I wonder, you know, I think at this point now they've conditioned us so much with movies 
and stuff like that. There's two two ways it can go. One way it can go, finally, where you guys been? We need some help here. The other way it can go is, um, you know, people become worshipers right away because we have this gene and there's this worship gene, which was inserted into the human genome. We know this now because scientists have, have actually found the worship gene. You can turn it on and they can turn it actually off. What? Yes, this is, we have a worship gene. Worship gene. That's okay. right. And so it makes us want to worship something outside of ourselves, when in true reality, we should find the power inside. And this was inserted by the Anunnaki. That's my opinion. That's my hypothesis, I should okay. say, on this one. But this gene has been found, but it's happened around 200,000 years ago. Now, something else happened around that same time. Chromosome number two in the human body was pulled out, fused together, and then two telomere caps to put on each end. Telomere caps have ge- our genetic material that allow us ourselves to replicate. It has the biological uh, buffer material in it. Now, when the buffer material runs out, that's when your body starts the death process. Now, around 200,000 years ago is when the tablets say this occurred at the Tower of Babel incident, which made it into the modern-day Bible, the Tower of Babel incident, where, where in the Bible it's God who comes back, Yeshua, I mean, uh, Yahweh comes back and he sees the people building a tower into the heavens and he gets pissed off and he destroys the tower. And he said, I'm, that's it. Man's like man's years will be 120. They'll never live more than that. And I'm going to confuse their languages and separate them and spread them out all over the planet. So they can't talk to each other. But in the Sumerian tablets, it was actually Enlil, who's Yahweh in the Bible. He comes back and sees us and he goes, oh, man, these people are getting too smart. They're going to they're going to realize they don't need us to rule over them. So he confused their language, taught, broke everybody up, made different languages. There's only one language at the time. Then the years will be 120, shorten the lifespan. Before then, people were living for hundreds of years. Now the maximum lifespan that they found out at Harvard that a human being could live on average would be 120 if it wasn't for the poison and everything else going on. Mm. You know, it's toxicity in the foods and atmosphere. And they discovered they started experimenting with mice and they were able to stop the degradation degradation of the telomeres and got the mice to live three times their normal lifespan. All this information would be mind blowing information to come out. If this truth was really told about our ancient past and what really happened, people would realize we've been altered, genetically modified. Our lifespans have been shortened so that we can be subjugated and ruled over. We never live long enough to really figure out what's going on. But by the time we figure it out, we're gone and another generation starts over from zero again. And so we're at this precipice now. We need to be able to pass this information on from generation to generation and teach them the real, true ancient history so that we can break this, this cycle that we're in of this, of this being a boot on our neck and being ruled over by a small handful of people. Less than 100 people on this planet control 8 billion people. Less than 100 people run the lives of 8 billion people worldwide. They know what you smell, eat, taste, touch, hear, think. And they control everything you do, where you can go, where you can't go. And so for us to take back control of this planet, we need to know this ancient information. We need to know what happened in the past so we can make a better future because the past is prologue. We can't take control of this planet until that happens. And so to answer your question is this. Once people understand this fundamentally, the true reality is we'll take back control of our planet. These beings, they they don't land and walk around. They're waiting for us to grow up. I think that the ones that had subjugated us have been long gone after a last pyramid war that happened about 5,000 years ago. And the ones that are looking at us now that we see these UFOs, UAPs flying around, not all of them are, our, are there, some are ours, but the ones that are from, from other places, they're watching us and they're looking and they're saying, you know what? They're still crawling. They're not ready for us yet. When they learn how to walk, 
when these eight million eight eight billion people, I'm sorry, when these eight billion take back control of their planet and stop allowing less than 100 people to put a boot on their neck and divide them and all these divide and conquer tactics. They don't love one another. They don't, they don't respect one another. They don't respect even themselves. When they grow up past that level, they almost show up because in back in the ancient times they would show up. People were so, uh, the IQ wasn't there yet. We were just hunter gatherers living around and we didn't have a weapon to fire back at them. Now, Somebody shows up. Everybody wants to try to take it out of the sky. We want to get this technology. We want to co-opt it. We want to reverse engineer it. Yeah. We want to weaponize it. Territorial apes with thermonuclear weapons. Scary. <laughs> and, you know, they, that's another thing. Real quick before we go on. They look at our planet and they go, okay, they know how to split the atom. Interesting. Oh, they've got weapons. Let me check out the codes on these weapons. We know this because UFOs have showed up at military mm-hmm. bases and deactivated nukes mm-hmm. in broad daylight as testified before Congress by actual military officers and nuclear physicists. But they say, okay, well, they've got all these nukes aimed at their own planet. While they're still on the planet with no escape hatch. So right there it tells you, they're saying, you know what? Mm, yeah. It's so dumb, isn't it? It's really bad. So they're saying, you know, we're going to just keep looking. You know, we, we have to just monitor and look at the situation and just keep seeing how long will it be before they wake up. That's what I think is happening. So that's why you don't they don't land on the you know, well, in the you front know yard. the crazy thing is, is they they hang out on the fringe of being observable. Yeah, they don't make themselves. They they obviously have the ability to make themselves completely invisible. Yeah, but they're choosing not to. Right, right. Like if you look at the incidents with the fighter pilots witnessing them talking about there's multiple fighter pilots ryan graves Mm -hmm. uh and uh david fravor Mm -hmm. talking about their reporting flying by these objects seeing them with their own eyes additionally to seeing them on radars Mm -hmm. and we're obviously very aware of it even like the new york times is talking about it so they're making themselves visible to the extent that we're we can see holy shit these things are so much more advanced than we are right but they're not actually like landing and saying, aha, here we are. Nice to meet you. They're not saying hello. Yeah. I think there's a sort of a prime directive that they have just based on the observation of what's been going on all this time with all this sound of like, we're here, but we're not here. We're hiding in different spectrums of colors or we're, Mm -hmm. we might be a cloud. We might not be the cloud, you know, and it looks like a prime directive as if they're have some type of a base law that we don't understand or know about where they're not fully engaging us uh, in a way that like you're talking about, because we know when we went to the uh, Bikini Atoll in the, uh, I think it was a, the, the late 40s, early 50s, and started testing weapons, nuclear weapons, we took all those uh, islanders and we moved them. And they, these people had never seen airplanes or other people before. Forget seeing airplanes. They'd never seen anybody but themselves, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, they created a cargo cult. They took reeds and sticks out of the bushes and created airplanes out of them. And they worshiped the planes. They tattooed USA on their chest. You got black guys walking around in the bush with USA on their painted on their chest. They make fake guns out of sticks that look like, you know, AK 47s and so forth, automatic weapons. And then they sit down on these man made runways that they've dug out and they look at the sky for hours waiting for the sky gods to bring them back more cans of spam. And I think the same thing would happen if a lot of these beings would just engage underdeveloped cultures. That, you know, we're not ready for certain levels of understanding and technology yet in certain ways. Um, you know, you still got people running around, uh, you know, trying to steal stuff at the checkout at, uh, you know, at Walmart. I mean, it's just it's certain, a certain level of of uh, of IQ and maybe understanding and unconditional love that we need to have for ourselves and the planet maybe before they just fully engage. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, there's so many problems there, right? With humanity, like, like the, there's so much desperation on earth and different parts yeah. of the world that breed all these, you know, all these things yeah. like, like crime and corruption and right. death and all the stuff. But I mean, going back to the UFO conversation, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Dr. Robin Hansen, but he talks about this idea, this, this concept concept of grabby aliens. Mm. And he talks about um, if there are, if there is another alien civilization, there's two options that it would choose. If it was, you know, say millions of years ahead of us, it would become a grabby, a grabby civilization, mm. meaning it would do what us humans do, expand, control mm. as much as we possibly can out into the universe and into multiple star yeah. systems. Or they would come to the conclusion that if we want to let these explorers go out and colonize other stars, mm -hmm. we have to, we'll, we'll be essentially letting go or letting go of control of them. Right. And they can do whatever they want. They can come back and take us over. Mm -hmm. We, we have no control. So yeah. they would either choose that to let them mm -hmm. go, or they would choose to control everybody or, or keep everybody on the planet and have like a one world government. Right. And govern govern the whole entire world, and some so, and somehow have some sort of security guards, quote unquote security guards, there to make sure no one escapes yeah. the planet, or no right. one if the, if there are explorers that go out have fail safes in place to make sure they don't colonize or be, right. become grabby. Right. And what his idea of what these or one of his theories to what these modern day UFOs could be mm -hmm. is it could be one of these other civilizations that are just here to make sure we don't become quote unquote grabby right. or we don't expand beyond our solar system. Mm -hmm. some, I, something around that. I believe that's pretty accurate. I wrote the, the, you know, I did a documentary, the black Knight satellite beyond the signal. It just aired. Uh, we had a big movie premiere it aired in some, some theaters actually. And now it's on my TV network, Forbidden Knowledge TV. And it's our number one documentary right now. It's actually up for three film awards right now. Oh, wow. And there's this object orbiting Earth that is estimated to be there for 13,000 years. And how we get this number is the NSA analyzed a signal from it. Uh, a couple of astrophysicists analyzed the signal. And some ham radio operators back in the 50s also got the same signal. All independent came up with the same translation decoding of the signal that it was saying it was from the Epsilon Boetis constellation. Now, I heard about this about 10 years ago, and I got really, really interested in this story. And I realized it was even deeper than that, that the article about this came out in Time magazine by one of the astronomers that was researching this thing and decoding the signal. And I said, Time magazine picked this up in 1960. Then I saw some reports of it following Sputnik when Sputnik's uh, Russian sent Sputnik to orbit the moon and come back. Mm. Uh, and I said, this thing has course correction. Then they discovered that it, it was in a polar orbit. It had changed course and went into a polar orbit, something we couldn't do until just recent times. We didn't even know how to get a polar orbit orbiting from pole to pole. In order to create a lot of the megalithic structures that you've seen, like the pyramid complexes and everything else, you need a polar orbit. How come we haven't been able to have a polar? Some, you're saying something orbiting the Earth like from a up and down vertical. Yeah, from pole to pole. So this is the Earth. It would Instead orbit. of going around the equator, right. it's going the other. It's going. We just got that. Maybe I think we ended up getting it official like in the 19, late 1980s. Oh, really? Yeah. But this thing has been orbiting in a polar orbit from the 1950s. Everybody was looking up at the sky and uh, tracking uh, things in the sky as we were trying to go in the space race against Russia. 
Uh, and especially when Sputnik launched in 1960, everybody was looking up to the sky. All everybody was scanning the sky. We had some Mercury stuff going on. And the Black Knight satellite, it, uh, the object itself is interesting because a Epsilon Boetus comes up individually several times. So I looked into Epsilon Boetus. I'm like, well, let me, see, let me research this place. Found out there's something called a void there. This void is called a Boetus void. It's the largest known void in the universe. It's not even dust in this area going on for about 250 uh, million light years or some crazy spanning number like that. And so I saw uh, Michio Kaku, the famous theoretical physicist talking about it. And he said that in that void, it looks like lights being bent around that area. And he says that we think that it's a potentially, it could be a cloaked advanced civilization. And I was like, that's pretty interesting because the Black Knight is giving up this location. Now, you're saying it might be a cloaked advanced civilization based on, you know, theoretical physicist hypothesis. So I looked into it a little bit deeper and discovered that Boetus is owned by Enlil from the ancient Sumerian tablets. These beings own planets and moons and some even owned constellations. So I'm like, wow. So there's. In these tablets, it says there's a guy named Botus who owns... And Lil owns Botus. Oh, and Lil owns this right. Botus void. And Enlil was the ruler of the earth at that time. And guess what Enlil had in his in the tablets? He had the all-seeing eye. The eye of Sauron, which has made it into the Lord of the Rings. He had the all-seeing eye. They copied that from the tablets. Wow. The Lord of the Rings copied it from the oh tablets. Oh, my gosh. So he can see... Now, listen to this. He can see population densities on the planet. He can see who had crops, who didn't have crops. He can see weather patterns all over the Earth. You can only do that with with a polar orbiting satellite. Because as the Earth spins on its axis, the satellite's orbiting this way. And so as the Earth is, and as, so as the satellite's orbiting this way, it's taking swaths, I'm sorry, swaths right, of data. Right. And it's scanning topography, it's scanning patterns, it's scanning everything you need, right? Bar- barometric pressures and all that kind of stuff. You can see scanning densities. Uh, you know, you can scan for population densities. All that can come from one satellite orbiting mm. the planet in a polar orbit. He had that. He knew what was going on. And he would, unfortunately, he was a pretty evil dude. If humans were getting too outrageous in one area, overpopulating an area, he would just have them killed. He would just, this is in the tablets, just kill them. Kill 100,000, kill 200,000. He would dry their crops out. He would spray stuff on their crops and to dry them out so they can starve to death. All this kind of crazy stuff. This guy was just ruthless. He saw us just as animals. He didn't see us as, as real sentient beings. Uh, but this guy owned Boetus. So I said, wait a minute. So I, the more I dug into it, I realized that the Black Knight satellite, or just object that is still orbiting our planet right now, NASA, it's on NASA's server. It's called, they call it space junk. Space junk. Yeah, they call it space junk. They don't know what it is. It's been there. The STS-88 mission did a flyby and caught a great HD image of this thing. It's about estimated 15 tons. It's in our orbit. Oh, yeah. It's okay. in our orbit. So it's not it's not far out. It's not outer space. It's... No, no. It's at Lagrange 4, Lagrange point four, I believe. Okay. And it's orbiting out there, and uh, it's still there. They won't mess with it because it makes no sense to mess with it. You don't know what type of self-defense system or mechanism this thing may have, but the reason why I think it's important, based on what you were telling me about this gentleman, is because I believe that this thing is watching us. That's what the whole documentary is about. And I have 20 incredible researchers in the document, including quantum physicists in the documentary with me and astrophysicists. I think it's watching us. And I believe that it's using quantum entanglement to transmit everything in real time. What's going on on earth back to home base at mm. Boetus. Wow. And that this could be the grabby civilization that we're, you're talking about that is watching and making sure we don't get too crazy because they don't want us to be a threat. They talked about us being coming a threat in the Sumerian tablets in the myth of Adapa, 
They talked about it. They talked about it in the Atrahasis epic. They talked about it in the epic of Gilgamesh. All these tablets, they talk about us potentially rising up and even superseding them uh, and, and, and making sure that we never found out that we don't need them. Mm. This is an ancient tablets. And now finding, finding out that he is the, uh, attri- the, the constellation of Boethus is attributed to Enlil. And this thing gives off the signal to Boethus. And even in the NSA document, which is read in my documentary, it all comes together like, wow, what is going on here? So I think your guy's theory to, you know, about grabby civilization, mm-hmm. I believe it. I believe it 100%. Yeah, it's fast. It's a fascinating concept, concept, and it yeah. makes a lot of sense. Another weird thing is is which I find fascinating is is the um, the trans medium aspect of these UFOs, like mm-hmm. being in the water and yeah. going in and under the water. And it makes a lot of sense because yeah. the oceans are one of the things that we have explored very little of. Yes, absolutely. You look at Christopher Columbus uh, in his actual captain's log. He documents, now think about this. You're talking about the 1400s, right? There's no there's no light pollution. Right. Something comes up out of the ocean, a bright light, a gigantic bright light comes up out of the ocean and goes up into space. It's documented in his in, in his um you know in his captain's log. Mm. You only write down things in a captain's log that are important. Right, right. <laughs> and that's in there. So Something came, yes, that's an anomaly. What is coming up with there's no light bulbs back then? So what is it that came out of the ocean? by the ship that can light up the sky. Yeah. That's pretty fucking crazy, man. Yeah. Um, what I heard you mention before, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about this, mm-hmm. but I've heard you talk about um, in the tablets, there's a different depiction of Adam and Eve, how yeah. they were created mm-hmm. and how that relates to the Anunnaki specifically. Right. Can you explain specifically how that, sure. how that was described in the tablets? So in the tablets, they don't actually make a human being from like dirt and dust, like it says in the Bible. Like they didn't get right. no dirt and just make a human being like magic. What they did was there was an existing hominid already on this planet. So the Gigi right. was getting ready to go to war. There was going to be a coup against the kings of Earth. So they came from Mars to Earth. They the gods the they fell from heaven. That really there were the angels. It was the, they were a lower class than the level of Enkian and Lil. They didn't call them gods. They were like angels. They fell from heaven to earth. They came from Mars down to earth to go to war. In the Atrahasis, they encircled the camp in Africa of Enlil and Enki and Anu, who was their father. And they get ready to go to battle because their working conditions are harsh. They've been working for 250,000 years on their own. They call the years in shars. So they, it was a lower number, but each one shar is 3,600 years. So what you add it up is 250,000 years. No women was one of the biggest complaints. <laughs> uh, and, and, and the biggest complaint was no women. <laughs> And they felt like they were becoming slaves, even though they were volunteers for this breakaway civilization. And so uh, the war almost happened. But then Enki, who's Enlil's brother, says, I have an idea. There's an existing being here. They're talking about our cousin, not Homo sapien. Something else was here already. Our cousins. Mm -hmm. We can add our essence to to it and get it to do our labor, to do your labor. And an agreement was made. This is in the Enuma Elish and a totally separate tablet called the Atrahasis Epic. Two separate tablets saying the same exact thing, which is interesting because it correlates the story, it corroborates the story. And so this was done. And so what they did was they first started with taking genetic material and then making these clones. But the problem with the clones was they couldn't reproduce on their own. You know, if you take a horse and a donkey and you get a mule and a mule can't mate with anything. 
See what I'm saying? So they had added their essence to us. We were then a mule. We weren't able to make. They had to keep trying to recreate more and more of us the hard way. Mm. Eventually, and they were doing this in a place called, um, it was in South Africa, called Adam's Calendar in Africa, which they discovered recently were the first 200,000-year-old gold mines were. They were putting us to work right away mining gold. But anyway, so uh, from there, they said, okay, these clones are here, but it's not working out properly. And that's when... And her sag, a.k.a. Isis, they said, I'm going to take one to term. She took an egg out of a hominid, cleaned out some of the genetic material, added their essence to it. In other words, genetically modified the egg in some way. This is what we call in modern scientific terms, making a zygote. And then in vitro fertilization in her own womb, 10 months later, gave birth to Adamu, which means first man. And the famous uh, cylinder scroll is in the British Museum of her holding up the baby saying, my hands have created it, the Adamu. And that was Adam. And uh, and then after that, there was this tablet that came out called the Myth of Adapa, which is also Adamu in a different way. But it talks about the fact that we are created in a way where Enki, for whatever reason, it pissed his brother off. He added something a little extra to us that he wasn't supposed to do. He gave us the capability of having uh, in the future of superseding the Anunnaki themselves. And it made the Anunnaki relatives of his jealous of us and angry with us because he had created something that even long term could be better than them extra strands of dna and all this other stuff that he incorporated into our genome that would allow us eventually one day to rise even above and nobody knew why he did it but he it got he got him into a battle against his own brother this is all in ancient tablets wow you know one of the craziest things to me is that if these people if these if these beings were so much more advanced than we are now mm-hmm. why would they have emotions like jealousy and anger and all these yeah. primal yeah, sort of emotions i mean the, these yes. sort of things with with our species are like the worst thing right they're the reason we go to war and kill yeah. each other and people starve yeah and that's a great question so when you read the beginning of how they started out it appears that there was a galactic war millions of years ago in the pleiadian star system Planets were being destroyed. They had weapons called the Brahmanda weapon, which would destroy any man on three worlds. They had these tablets of destiny, which whoever had control can destroy people's planets and moons. Debris. Imagine in this solar system, debris going everywhere and hitting planets, destroying civilizations. We would flee if we could. People started fleeing these star systems around the Pleiades millions of years ago, creating breakaway civilizations in other parts of the galaxy, different, different sector altogether. The Anunnaki people, these Atlantean people, they went and started off in another place. They had risen to a high level there. They had uh, done away with the weapons of, this is interesting, weapons of mass destruction. They had a weapon called a WMD. Hmm. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yes. And they had done away with them. They were forsaken. But when a small group of these people broke away and came to kickstart a civilization here on Earth, they stole some of the WMDs and brought them with them. This is in ancient tablets. They put them in a hid them in a mountain and didn't and swore never to use them. But when they got here and they started doing what they were doing and they started breaking all their own rules, they began to realize there's nobody here to guard us. There's nobody here to stop us from doing this. And they said the creator of all is going to uh, uh, is going to get us for this. They even believed somebody was higher than them. They realized that they were acting like the Wild Wild West here. And they started off very strict, and then they gradually, with nobody overseeing them, really, they started like going back primal. In other words, the, the thoughts of war and this and the greed and all that kept, crept back in. And eventually, somebody went and got the weapons, and they started fighting each other with the weapons. 
So it was this gradual process over 100,000 years or so between, between them coming in with a very strict set of rules and of engagement, of engagement and everything else and, uh, uh, and uh, ideology until just collapsing over time and realizing who's going to stop us? Who's going to tell me I can't do this? Nobody's going to come here and stop me from doing There's no law here. And then they just went rush out. They went crazy. Backwards. Kind yes, of. they went backward. They backslid hard. But it took a couple hundred thousand years before they fully backslid. Wow. It's like raising a kid and then all of a sudden you you know you you know you're a teenager now your mom says okay you can go out tonight and you go out and you go wow I'm out you know what well no my, my mom ain't here but I could do this nobody's going to tell me to stop doing you know so it's kind of like a teenager that gets let, let left out there and with no guidance and that's what happened. When you create all the content you create the documentaries the videos yeah. and, and and do all and produce all these movies and stuff do you have run into trouble when you try to recruit like mainstream scientists or cosmeto- cosmetologists I've, people- had, I've gotten i tried to recruit james webb to do the black knight satellite and uh initially he said yes and then he looked a little bit deeper into what i was talking about he he ran away quick and then I had another another astrophysicist from the university at uh, Nova in uh, in uh, Davie, Florida, and initially he was in, and then he dug a little deeper, and he said, "Oh no, no, no!" You know. So I've had situations like that. Fortunately, I've gotten on the Travel Channel, the History Channel, Discovery Channel, the Science Channel, Gaia TV. Now I'm on my own TV network, and so I've got so much popularity talking about these types of topics, these fringe topics, and so now, and a lot of them have been done in a very professional way. You know, now I'm coming up. I'm going to be on Ancient Aliens uh, TV series, which is like the longest running series on History Channel right now. And so it's added a little bit more credibility. The fact that more people are opening up and talking about it and it's on mainstream TV. It's it's, it's giving people a reason to, to ask questions and talk about it versus it being some hidden conspiracy thing. And so it's become a little bit easier. When I did the Black Knight, I got probably about five or six no's, maybe seven, actually seven no's. And then but the rest of the other people they were eager to come on board and share the knowledge and, uh, you know, participate in the, in the documentary and many others that I'm working on also. Yeah. They get a lot of backlash from yeah. people in the other people in their universities and their colleagues when right. they, when they even entertain discussions like this. Yes. Yeah. They think they're going to lose their funding, their grant money. It's yeah. all about the money. It never is. It's never about the truth of what really happened. It's all about, well, if we do this, they may pull the funding and you know, mm-hmm. it's all about how, how can I pay my bills? You know? Yeah. I remember, uh, even, Avi Loeb, uh, the guy who discovered the Amuamua, he yes. talks about this a lot. He had a lot of people who were very angry with him. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it is also just jealousy because mm-hmm. there's so many people that dedicate their lives to studying these <laughs> things and they're in the universities. And then one guy decides to yeah. st- step outside the line a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and then they get all this attention. The guy's got a book, a really a super popular yes. book. He's yeah. on all over the internet. Yeah. He's going to be on my network soon. Have you ever talked to him? Not yet. No, I have my, my what, producer's been talking. What do you think about that Amuamua object that he found? I think Amuamua is an amazing uh, artifact anomaly. I don't think it's a rock or a stone or any type of comet or asteroid. I think it's an actual remnant of an ancient galactic war that existed. It To me, it ties into the ancient war theory that existed. There was another war that happened here that extended from Earth to the moon and then even to Mars. That Amua Amua to me is a relic of an ancient war. It even had to me, it might be so operational. It, it kind of used the sun as a gravitational assist and shot itself out deeper into deep galactic space, into galactic mm. space. And I, the shape of it to me and everything else, it just, to me, it spells artificially made, mm-hmm. artificially constructed. 
I remember Comet 67P. I took images of that comet. Uh, Which one was that? That was the one we sent uh, a mission to to land on it, and we landed on it about five or six years ago. Find this one. Yeah. 67P, Comet 67P. Yeah. And what's interesting, there's some, there were some openings on the comet, or there are some openings on the comet. And some of the images, now the images were coming in real time every single day from the satellite that was that is orbiting it, and actually a lander went to the to the surface. That's it there. And what's interesting is on some days, the openings look like something was in them. Not anything we can recognize, but we don't know how, how an opening can close and how an opening can be open again, how it can be blocked by something and how it can be open again. Mm-hmm. So just, I think there's a lot of stuff out there we just can't really explain. There's a lot more going on than we know. And there's a reason why they went to this comet and rendezvous with this, because this thing really, to me, it had something miraculous going on. They wanted to take a closer look. I think that's why they spent the money and the resources to go to this comet. Was this comet part of the Torrid meteor stream or... No, it wasn't. It's just another one of these objects that uh, seems to just be floating around on its own, kind of a rogue comet, and we rendezvoused with it, and uh, it's it's got weird things going on, weird gravitational fields that shouldn't exist. Uh, they landed something called the Filet Lander on it, and they they misjudged the gravity because based on their calculations, it has a certain gravity, and it didn't have it. Look at that. Austin, blow up that picture where it says the comet uh, in rel- relationship to Los Angeles. Click no, yeah, right there, right there. That. Right, yeah, that's it. Yeah, holy shit, that's a big one. That's a big one. That thing is enormous. Yeah, I think that, that, there's one below it of it next to. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If that hit Earth, we'd be done. We'd be finished. Oh my god. There's another comet out there called Apophis. Apophis is the size of Texas, and it came by a, uh, about ten years ago. And then it came by one more time and it hit a gravitational keyhole on the last swing by right between Earth and the moon. Nobody, they didn't say anything about it till it left. It came closer than the moon? Yeah. And then it hit a gravitational keyhole. Now, what's interesting about it. What is, other, it what is a gravitational keyhole? Well, when you're on a orbital mechanics, if you hit a gravitational keyhole, that means on the next approach, that same object, wherever it is in space, on your next approach to that object, you potentially can hit it. Okay. So you're looking at uh, 2036 or something like that. We could potentially have a collision with Apophis, which is why Obama, when he was in office, he knew about this. They, they, they briefed him on this. Apophis? Apophis. Okay. He set a mission to start landing on asteroids and learning how to shift their orbits. Because something like that, you can't blow it up. Mm-hmm. If you blow it up, it'll destroy the planet even faster because it'll be giant chunks hitting the planet all over the place versus just one impact. But you have to learn how to shift the orbit by landing something on it and, and turning on some type of a rocket propellant to shift it out of its orbit mm. to take it into a different Lagrange point so it doesn't hit the planet. And so that's what they they just actually successfully did that. I think it was actually a few months ago. They really? Landed, we rendezvoused. The, the mission was started when Obama was in office. They just landed. No <laughs> That's how long way. it took to get to it. It was, a, it was a, a executive order he signed to make this happen, to make sure that we knew how to move comets out of the way from hitting our planet. And we actually just did it. And so they're hoping that uh, they can rendezvous with this apophis if it's going to be on an approach that's going to be a collision course so they can maneuver it out of the way. How how big was the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs? Do you know? Um, I don't know. You know, who knows? When you're, t- when you're dealing with that kind of speed and impact. Well, the crazy thing, too, is a lot of them blow up in the sky. Right. Like Tunguska. That thing exploded, I think, five miles in the sky and just yeah. created like a shotgun blast. Flattened everything for miles. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy stuff. So these things are these. You know, there's just so much stuff out there. There's another object that orbits our Earth with the moon. With the moon. So we actually have two mm-hmm. moons. 
there's another object that's flipping around out there in its own orbit around Earth. It's not as big as the moon, but it's, it's our second moon. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's been there for you know since forever. And uh, it's on this weird uh, orbit around Earth. It orbits Earth along with our moon orbiting Earth. You know, there's a lot of a lot of people have some very um, strange theories about the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about the moon? Well, I can only go by data points because, you know, I'm a data point guy. If you go to USGS.gov and download the satellite radar imagery of the moon, anyone can do this. Pull it into your computer. Radar, pen, ground penetrating radar is going to let you see what's 30 meters beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And what you see is what looks like structures beneath the surface of the moon. With the naked eye, no editing, no photoshopping, just looking at it. There's videos on YouTube. You can pull them up all day long. You can find videos about the moon. There's one guy, Mars Anomalies, Chris Maroney. He was actually in my documentary. He's one of the top anomaly hunters in the world. He did a great video with the official images and all the source links on the uh, the substructures that appear to be in the uh, ground-penetrating radar images of the moon. And as you know, the moon rang like a bell when they crashed the lander into it. Right. And so, I, in my opinion, it's hollow. Now, I have something else. In another documentary I was in about the moon, uh, I think it was uh, 2013, there is a, we got the Freedom of, the Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA, on the black box for the Apollo 11. Now, we have the audio and we have the redacted printed document. And in the audio, which we play in the documentary, uh, one of the astronauts is looking down as they're going across the moon looking for a landing site. And he says, look at those convex domes down there. And then Neil goes, I bet the people down there never get out. And that's on the black box audio. And it even made it into the redacted doc. They didn't redact that statement. It's still on the redacted official black box written st- uh, statement from the Apollo 11. Really? Yeah. I bet the people down there never get out. Pretty interesting. Wh- and how did you find this? That's now available to the public, a FOIA, Freedom of Information oh, Act. Oh, really? It's now available to everyone. Anyone can download it now, the Apollo 11 black box audio. And then we also have the um, declassified documents from the Clementine mission, which was a low lunar orbiting satellite that the military sent up to the moon, very close to the surface. When I saw the name Clementine, I knew right away, I said, oh, my God, this thing is not coming back. I bet I found out it never came back. And at the end, I found out it never came back. But it transmitted a lot of data and images that show anomalies on the dark side of the moon, on the back side of the moon. That's what primarily what they were after. Clementine, because, oh, my darling Clementine, you were lost and gone forever. That's an old country song. Mm-hmm. So I knew that song. I knew right away when they named it Clementine. They never planned for it to come back. They claimed it crashed, but I knew that was part of the plan. Leave it there. But it transmitted some amazing footage that's available actually online anyone can download in hd resolution unobfuscated of things that don't belong on the back side of the moon so it's just a lot of crazy stuff that you know just goes on um it's yeah wild. It, it, it is you know the craziest thing too is that we can't freaking get back to the moon it's been since about 50 years since we've been to the moon yeah. and we can't seem to get i think right now that i don't know did the artemis mission ever ever happen i know it's it's they postponed it like three or four times already yeah there's so many postponings about it and and, and uh you know i don't know if it's uh now i know we do have that they've left that dish up there in one of the apollo 14 or 15 missions mm-hmm. and every single day they transmit a packet of data from earth to that dish and by laser every single day what are they transmitting to that dish and why are they transmitting to the dish yeah that's an interesting thing that randall told me about yeah. too you know he was like if were to do anything he's like we should at least be 
try like if Earth got destroyed right mm-hmm. tomorrow, <clears throat> yeah. there would be virtually nothing left in uh, a couple thousand years. Right, literally building cities. New York City would be dust. Yeah, the only things that would be left are the pyramids, I think, <laughs> and uh, um, what is the what are the the what is the structure called Mount Rushmore? Oh yeah, like Mount Rushmore, right. like like these things will be yeah. will still be there. These big giant stone uh, structures, mm-hmm. but everything else, like like computers, everything else will be dust. Dust. And uh, he's like, one of the things that we should be doing is saving or digitizing everything on a hard drive on the moon. Somehow. Maybe that's what they're doing because they're transmitting data like you wouldn't believe. That's probably what they're doing. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it would be a smart thing to do. Yeah. It would be a smart fail-safe. Right, um, because you have to get back to the data. That's the only way to understand how to rec- recreate like a cell phone. We know how to use a cell phone, but I don't know how to make a cell phone. And if I learn how to make one part of it, how do I get the other parts to it that need to be done, like the towers and all the technology for a tower and the satellite communication? You have to have a place, a storehouse of information, almost like the a, 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 you know a, a chamber of knowledge mm-hmm. that one can tap into and open up and all the schematics and all the plans and everything else is right there for you mm. makes a lot of sense yeah and I, there was a there was an article I forget how long ago now the article came out but maybe a, maybe about six months ago but I think it was a Chinese rover spotted like some sort of black box on yes. the surface of the moon yeah and it was gonna take them they were gonna go check it out but it was the rover was so slow it supposedly it was going to take them months to get there. Well, that, yeah, that was the second one. The first one, which was years ago, it got stuck in debris. It got tangled in debris. What is debris doing on the moon? Uh, they sent one image back, and it had these things. That looked Maybe like, they meant rocks or something. No, it looked like they sent the images in the image. It oh. looks like bent wires and stuff all over the place, and they couldn't get free of it. And so this is just second one. Oh, no way. Yeah. Now, India sent uh, the India University. They have a, a college there. They raised $3 million, not $3 billion like we do, and they created a satellite sent it to Mars. And the first image they sent back was of Mars, blue light scatter in the sky, not red. Uh, you know, what looks like to be water beneath and mountains and everything else, not dark red like they NASA does. They, they call NASA calls those images, by the way, false color. They actually add that red color. Really? Yeah. And you can look it up and they tell you why they do it, because they said it makes image transmission better. Hmm. So it hides a lot of stuff. It's not red. It looks like you're walking around Arizona when you go there. And that image came back from Indians, uh, Indian Space Agency, and it blew everybody away because it was like, holy crap, it looks like Earth, but it was Mars. Yeah. And so so a- these images from the Indian <clears throat> Space Agency, they're yeah. online right now? Yeah, they're up there. And so let me see if I have one here. Austin, Austin can probably Google them. Yeah. Look up the Indian Space Agency Mars image. Now, what's interesting is Bolden, who was the head of NASA at the time, a week later, he flies to India and signs a deal with them <laughs> with, the, with the Space Agency for, with NASA. So pretty interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah. Why would he do that? As if they probably even move into maybe even cover it up or take mm. over the data or who knows what they do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, yeah. This is an image that I took of Mars from my Celestron 130 uh, home telescope. Wow. That's Mars in the summer. Anyone can get a Celestron SLT 130. Go out and that's uh, incredible. Go out in February. Aim it at Mars. You can find Mars on the app. You can get the space app and show mm-hmm. you where Mars is at. Tells you where to point it. <clears throat> and you'll you'll get this image. Okay, so what are we looking at here, Austin? Oh, oh, it's a... 
Yeah, some sort of news channel. Oh, okay, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Craters carved into a golden surface. These are the first images taken by a satellite by India's maiden Mars mission, released by the country's space agency on Thursday. Scientists tweeted, "The view is nice up here." Under the Twitter handle at Mars Orbiter, which has amassed more than 108,000 followers since its setup on Tuesday, the satellite, affectionately called MOM by the mission's acronym, will spend six months in elliptical orbit, collecting atmospheric de- data from as close as 365 kilometers and as far out as 80,000 kilometers from the planet's surface. Have you seen that that that, uh, that that new Space Force logo they came out with, the triangle? Yeah. You see how they put the sphinx in there? <laughs> or it was like a pharaoh's head? It's crazy. It's pharaoh's head. Yeah, they got it uh, looking real uh, ancient Egyptian. What the? I felt yeah. like, what are you guys? They're trolling us. Now, you want to know something else? When we went to Egypt, uh, the the entrance or the access to the Grand Gallery, the, the, yeah, the Grand Gallery inside the... Um, uh, Great Pyramid. That's the chamber leading up to the King's Chamber. That's the, the like this little alleyway leads up to the King's Chamber. Right. NASA owns the rights to the access to that. To the King's Chamber. Yes. Nobody's ever been in the King's Chamber, right? Yeah, I've, I've been there. Yeah, many oh, times. I mean, up up into the top part. Into the, no, the King's Chamber is not at the very top. It's inside this area. So oh. you go up about I don't know maybe forty or fifty meters, and then you enter enter into the shaft, and from there you're able to climb up a series of channels until you get to the grand gallery mm. and the grand gallery you have to bend and kind of pull yourself up right it leads you into the king's chamber you have to duck your head and go underneath this giant slab this i don't know 100 ton slab of freaking granite you get inside the king's chamber which i've been in there many times it took a hold of people and we were in there meditating. oh wow really yeah yeah it's incredible but uh i heard that there was that. i heard there's areas of the pyramid that no one's ever been into uh i heard there's like doors or something that you can't go through or no one's ever been through there are there's tons of places there's an area right above the grand gallery that was taken by a muon scan right exactly where Thoth says he hit the hall of records in the pyramid they found it 3 years ago this gigantic area above the king's chamber that's there it's uh, it's authenticated now by modern science that what was said in the tablets is real. Click on that giant diagram and blow that up, Austin. So, okay, go up. Yeah, right there. The big void. That's so the you've been in that king's chamber. Oh, yeah, many times. But not inside the void. No, no. Nobody's been able to go up there. Not yet. And they're probably cleaning out all the ancient knowledge and wisdom in there, all the <laughs> records and all the stuff that's in there. What do you think of the whole... Um, Giza power plant theory. I believe it. So, can you explain the basics of what it is? So, if you realize, if you look at the, if you do a rewind on the geological clock of Giza, you find out that the Nile ran right up next to the pyramids. Okay, so after their last war, that's why that's why Giza is nothing but sand. Mm-hmm. That's the remnants of an ancient war. That's why some of the sand has balls of glass in it. That's three thousand degrees temperature. That's vitrified uh, sand mm-hmm. turned to glass. But anyway, so the Nile used to run right up to the pyramids. Now, underneath the pyramid, we know that's true because we see the dried out aquifer uh, areas where there's these gigantic um, uh, shafts that run, not man-made, but natural forming uh, areas underneath the pyramid where the water would run. Now, when you take magnetized crystal granite, which is the base, and you use running water underneath it, you create physiostatic electricity. Then the granite will pull the ions up into the pyramid, send them up the Grand Gallery. Now, the Grand Gallery has these slots on each side, 
where the hypothesis by engineers, mainstream engineers too, is that they could have been resonating rods, something to amp up, step up the electricity as it went up into the king's chamber. In the king's chamber, here's what's interesting. There's a box in there that they try to say it's a sarcophagus. It's not a sarcophagus. I'm six foot four. I can't fit in that box. Sarcophagus, when you go to the museum, you see what a real sarcophagus is. These things are massive. Not this little tiny box. The box is the exact dimensions, though, of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant used to sit inside of that box. It was technology. It was a capacitor. And that would then give the extra boost and send the electricity up through the apex where there was a gold capstone. The obelisk, which are crystal, magnetized crystal granite, would capture that ambient wireless electricity and then pass it on to what they call Jed pillars, D-J-E-D, these Jeds. They had these Jeds. They're depicted in many hieroglyphs, people holding them and connecting them to light bulbs and electroplating devices in hieroglyphs, which I took everybody to go see. Pause for one second. What what, what did you say was inside the, the box? The Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of the Covenant? If you look into biblical text, for example, mm-hmm. there was this Ark that Moses stole. All right. He took, he had this box. He claimed it was given to him by God, but I think he stole it from the Egyptians. This is why they fled after him. An ark. Yeah. So it's this box with these cherubims on it, but these cherubims are really, a, it's really a capacitor. This, it generates a lot of electricity inside of this box is something that has so much radiation. That's what it looks like there that you had to have on specific type of clothing, which is well described even in the Bible, mm-hmm. rubber boots, gloves, this type of suit with this breastplate of metal on it to this is all to prevent the radiation poisoning. When somebody didn't have it on in the Bible and they touched the ark, they would become very sick. Their hair would fall out. Their nose would bleed. Their eyes would bleed. Their fingernails would fall off radiation sickness. This thing was generating some type of radiation power, some type of a, a generator of, of power of some sort. Um, and it was connected to the great pyramid. It was in that box evidence for this for me. That box has a gigantic piece of the granite missing off one corner, like an explosion happened from inside the box. Mm-hmm. If you look across the Grand Gallery, uh, I'm sorry, across the King's Chamber, there's a wall about maybe 30 feet away. The impact from that giant piece of granite that snapped off, it cut that granite on the wall, the exact shape of that corner piece. Wow. Something explosive happened there. For you to throw a piece of granite that heavy that far and impact that way, so there was energy in there. Now, if you go back to the story of Moses, it really was Pharaoh Akhenaten. Moses is not the real name. That's the made-up name. Pharaoh Akhenaten, who was ushering in monotheism in Egypt while he was a pharaoh, worshiping Amen-Ra, the great Amen. Amen-Ra was one of these Anunnaki people who said, look, from now on, there'll be no other God but me. That made it into the Bible. When you say thanks, you give, you say thanks to me, you say amen. That made it into the Bible. Teach the people only to worship me, not any of my other relatives. I'm the only one and true God. And he began to do that. Then he made an order to go start defacing all the hieroglyphs and all of these statues around Egypt. That's why the noses and the ears are chipped off. That's why the faces are chipped off everywhere you go. Bodies are chipped away. It wasn't done. The hypothesis on the streets is that it was done because white people back then didn't want black people to know that there were black people in Egypt. That's actually false. The true reality is. This was done in ancient times, and it was carried on by Coptic Christians long before Jesus was even born. They were still following that same monotheistic religion, and to them it was offensive to have these faces of all these gods around because it's only one true and only one God, the great Amen. And that's why all these things were done. Hmm. But Moses, 
when he was kicked out. So they said, look, this guy has to go. We got to get him out of here. They kicked him out of Egypt. They kicked the Pharaoh out of Egypt. He went and took that ark out of the Great Pyramid, and he fled with his new followers. They weren't slaves. They were followers of Akhenaten. They crossed the Sea of Reeds, not the Red Sea, which they tell you in the Bible. Nobody ever crossed the Red Sea. It's a mistranslation by accident on purpose. They crossed a much smaller, much easier to cross sea called the Red Sea, which is also in the same region. And then when the Pharaoh realized the power source of Egypt had been stolen, the new Pharaoh, they sent the, you know, sent the chariots after him and everything else. His son was uh, left behind. He didn't want to go. That's Tutankhamen. But Tutankhamen, they started worrying that maybe when he got a little older, he would say, I want revenge for my father. And so they decided to kill him and kill his, his, his girlfriend. And that's how the story ended that way. But anyway, that's what happened. So what was the purpose of this powerful arc? Like, what, what was it used for? Like, what, how are they used? They used these pyramids as giant power structures. Yeah. And the, this arc was like the, the reactor or like something. the reactor, right. So what were, they, what were they doing? Well, in the desert, when they had it out in the desert, it would give them power. It would give them power to power something called the mana machine. And the mana machine would generate this food for the, the masses of people that followed him out into the desert. And so it had this capability of generating food. Also, when they had were out there, they saw enemies. Enemies were trying to attack them. I don't know who these enemies were. It never clearly says who they were or why they were, were attacking, but they would then use this thing as a weapon. It would send a beam out and kill these people. This is technology. And that's in the Bible. Wow. That's fascinating. It's not magic. It's not a sky daddy with a magic wand. It's like real hardcore tech that was used. And they recreated this at a university in America. Using the exact instructions that are in the Bible. Really? What university created this? Uh, Google it. I can't remember the name of the university, but do you, Professor Recreates the Ark, or uh, you can look it up. Uh, several people actually have done it as well, too, since then. It, created, it generated so much power, he had to shut it down. It was pulling power from everywhere. Yeah. Crazy huh. stuff. From the exact instructions. And he made one. The engineer who said the Ark of the Covenant... This is a, a, group colleges, a group of college students made a replica of the Ark. That's one. Uh, there's quite a few now, but there's one that was a while back where uh, replicas. Yeah, they made you know just recreating it from the, uh, you know, from the actual uh, instructions. There's uh, tons. And of, where were the instructions? The instructions were. They were in the Bible. They were in the Bible. Yeah. Wow. One of the, there was many. There was a few arcs. There wasn't just one. One of them mm. was discovered at in Ethiopia at an Ethiopian church about nine years ago, and someone who did a documentary on it claimed it was there, and uh, and then right afterward, within a year, it was stolen from the church. They didn't have the military or security or anything like that, and somebody came and mm. just took it. Uh, so it's gone. That one's gone. But there's there's others. Um, but I'm pretty sure if you go on videos, you'll find. There's videos of this stuff being turned on and everything else. It's real tech. That's the problem with this stuff too, is it's so hard to find a lot of it online. Like the, with the, you know, I know Google curates a lot of the searches and, you know, I don't know what, how, how it works or what they push to the top or what they suppress, but a lot of this stuff is very hard to find when you look for it. Have you, uh, I'm sure you have, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the story of Bob Lazar, how he describes um, the crafts that he was recruited to back engineer. And he, oh, yeah. ex he explains how the reactor, like it mm -hmm. explains the reactor inside some of those crafts yeah. was like a, uh, like basically like when you 
hold two magnets together, two mm-hmm. opposite of magnets that, that repel each other. Yeah. And there's like that invisible force that pushes them away. Mm-hmm. He explained that's what this reactor was like when you tried mm-hmm. to like get close to it. It like mm-hmm. pushes you away like wow. that. Interesting. It kind of, that's what this kind of reminds me of. I believe Bob Lazar's story, he talked about Element 115 mm. 20 years ago. Yeah, his story hasn't changed in no. t- over 20 years. And now years. what happened like eight years ago, or not you know, seven years ago maybe, they discovered Element 115 finally, mm-hmm. which to me vindicates him. Uh, and they've named it now, uh, first they named it Unimpentium, then they named it something else, Muscovium or something like that. But mm-hmm. it's still, it's on the periodic table of elements now yeah and he talked about this element and they said no this impossible doesn't exist now all of a sudden it's on the it's on the chart yeah so to me now i have to listen to the guy because something he talked about 20 years ago is real mm. do you think it's true do you think that our government has the possession of some sort of of, of technology that they're not sharing with oh, yeah. the rest of science and academia they're not sharing with the public oh absolutely the the incident that happened at roswell it wasn't just that one craft Multiple craft came down that day. We were using something called a scalar weapon. We were aware of these craft. We used a scalar weapon. We realized early on that different frequencies were affecting the navigation of these craft. And we used that weapon. It wasn't really a weapon. We used it as a weapon to bring them down. Hmm. And then we recovered recovered those crashed those crashed uh, UFOs. See that that sort of troubles me. You know, I don't. I can't imagine if there was these this other civilization that had vehicles that are able to do the things they yeah. do like the way these pilots describe them how would we be able to take them down i well, don't just that know, just you, doesn't compute it, to me well you know space travel is very dangerous so you know going to mars and which is right around the corner is a deadly mission like anybody who gets up enough gall to go there they understand that they might even might not even leave our atmosphere mm-hmm. uh and even in a hundred years from now traveling to mars is still dangerous and imagine you're a civilization that's taking your first trip to the, uh, you know, to the Earth solar system area. Mm-hmm. And you come out here and you got your ship and, you know, that ship could be 30 or 40 years old in your time frame, wherever the case may be. It's already an old bugger. You made it out here. And now all of a sudden there's this uh, something you didn't, you didn't anticipate. You didn't anticipate this particular type of a frequency beam being pointed at your ship, yeah. di- disturbing your navigation. Just like we went all the way to the, to, uh, with the fillet landers to that gigantic uh, Comet 67P. And we thought we had the landing uh, programming all set. And all of a sudden we crashed into it because the gravity wasn't what we thought it was going to be. After spending billion, billions of dollars, we, we crashed the lander. Mm-hmm. We couldn't land properly. So I think that space travel is really dangerous. Even, yeah. you know, so we finally break out of this solar system. We want to go to another solar system and we want to go there. There's going to be unforeseen things that can happen that we may never make it back. You're really going to be a real, a, a real explorer when you go out there like that. Space is dangerous. Do you think that it's, I mean, do, what do you think is more probable that they traveled through space to get here or they traveled some other way? Like they are either through another dimension or that they're here already, maybe living under the ocean or living somewhere that we, we have all three. Everything you just said is accurate to me. I think we have under the ocean mm-hmm. that there's people living here that have been here for a very long time. I believe that, it, that they have their own breakaway civilization. The oceans are pretty much mostly on just undisturbed. Uh, and they're there. I think you also have multidimensionals beings that are in higher dimensions or other dimensions that know how to match their subatomic frequency to our particular dimension. And they can walk right in or fly right in or come right in in some type of way. And then also I believe that you have beings that are, that are light years away that can travel here. 
and I don't think that they're using typical space travel. They're probably using something like a warp drive, where in a warp drive, what really happens is you actually shrink space in front of the ship and you expand it from the back. So in access, you're, in, in essence, you're like you're sitting on a tablecloth and then somebody's pulling the tablecloth. And so you're riding the tablecloth. You never really go anywhere. A warp drive, you never really move. And we've tested the warp drive now. We've actually got a functioning and working warp drive in the laboratory. Oh, really? Yeah. So the wow. technology is real. We've created a real warp bubble. Is this similar to what they explain when like traveling through black holes, you take a piece of paper and you just fold it in half and you're traveling from here to here? That's different. That's okay. portal travel. Okay. So that's hyperspace where you actually use something called an Einstein-Rosen bridge is the technical term used because Einstein and Rosen, two you know, theoretical physicists, came up with the idea that you can we can go through bent or warp space mm-hmm. and you can get there quicker. Uh, and so, which is great. And I believe that happens too. Uh, but again, the exotic energy we would need is pretty extreme. You really have to be in a super advanced civilization to be able to do that. But traveling multiples of the speed of light without breaking the theory of relativity is possible with a warp drive. Without breaking the theory of relativity. Right? Yeah. In other words, saying general that relativity, general, general, relativity. general rel- yeah. relativity, saying that, you know, we, we, we're going faster than the speed of light. Well, how can you do that? Well, you can do that because you never moved. Only space moved. So right. by that method, you're not breaking the law. Now, some of these some of these uh, anti-gravity examples of technology that Bob Lazar talks about, this, this stuff would sort of bypass general, general relativity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But the thing is, like, for example, with some of those crafts that are moving like 6,000 miles an hour making 90-degree turns, you have to realize that they're in a bubble. So the anti-gravity, it creates right. this bubble around the vessel. Right. And anything inside is not affected by those movements because what appears to us to be erratic movements inside the bubble, you're, it's like if you're driving in a car that's moving 80 miles an hour and there's a fly in the car with you, we know flies can't fly, you know, a house fly, they can't fly 80 miles an hour. Why is a fly in the car flying around while you're moving at 80 miles an hour? Because the fly has already picked up the speed of the moving car. Right. And now the, car, the fly itself is moving at 80 miles an hour as well. And so, you know, it's kind of that scenario. Yeah. He, the way he explains it, which is, I think, makes a lot of sense, is essentially whenever those things are moving, the way they're described is like they're falling. Mm-hmm. They're falling in that direction. And they're yeah. just bending gravity around them. Yeah. NASA just found X points around Earth. They call them X points. These are naturally occurring portals. They say they're natural. that open and close every day. X points. Look it up. I just heard something, I forget who, I think it was Jeremy Corbell posted on Twitter that there was a guy around in Arizona, I think it was, somewhere near Site S4. Mm. He was doing something, studying rocks. This guy was not into aliens or any of that Mm -hmm. stuff over at S4 or Area 51. And he was camping there for a while. He knew he was in restricted area, Mm -hmm. but he really wanted to take some photos of some rocks. I don't know exactly what he was doing. I'm wow. probably fucking this up, but <laughs> he, he basically explains he yeah. saw a fucking door come up out of Papoose Lake. Wow. Like just appear like a floating doorway in, yeah. in, in space, man, come up out of Papoose Lake. Is All that, is that similar to what you're describing? These X points? Well, the X points, they are the upper atmosphere. Okay. Like, so they're like upper atmosphere just outside the, uh, you know, the atm- but not too far out where they're on the Lagrange point. They're like right at the top surface, right outside the atmosphere of Earth. And they, they're these diffusion points, they call them, that at certain times of the day, 
portals actually open up and they even leave, have direct paths to the sun, to the moon, even to other planets and other parts of, of space, which is pretty crazy. And they're saying that they're artificial, see, hidden portals in, in Earth's magnetic field. <laughs> and they're, so now scientists are working on how can they create a stable uh, X point and control when it opens and closes and where can it take them to, things like that. Mingling lies of magnetic force from the sun and the earth crisscross and join to create opening X points and where the crisscross takes place are the X points are where the crisscross takes place. The sudden joining of magnetic fields can propel jets of charged particles from the X points, creating an electron diffused region, electron diffusion region. Yeah. Whoa. That's pretty nuts. Yeah. So many crazy things, man. So many fucking <laughs> wild. a lot going on out here. There's a lot going on. It's hard to keep up with all of it. I know. How do you keep up with all this new stuff happening all the time? And a lot yeah. of it doesn't, you can't like, if you're just the average Joe who's right. not really, you're just doing your nine to five, living right. your life, taking care of your kids. Yeah. It's so hard to to manage and keep track of all this stuff that's happening, right. especially when it's not in like the mainstream right. surface level of the, of the media. It's an absolute lifestyle. You know, it's a lifestyle. And fortunately for me, from the way my brain was trained, once I read something, I can retain a lot of it for a long period of time. It's hard to forget a lot. You know, like I haven't, knew, you know, the X points that came out in 2012 or something like that. And, and, and I'm still remembering all the information about the X points. You know, so my, my retention has been fairly decent, which helps me a lot. Mm. How did you come to learn about or have uh, such a complex understanding of different dimensions and how they work? Like the fourth dimension, I think you said there's up to 11 dimensions or or scientists have discovered that somehow. I started studying quantum physics. That was after that incident. That was the other thing that happened after that incident, that encounter, if you want to Mm -hmm. call it. I started having a heavy thirst for quantum physics, and I started deep delving deep, deep, deep into it. I even created a quantum physics group on Facebook. Uh, and then I started studying with Khan, K-H-A-N University, which is a free university that a lot of people don't know exists online, and they have a quantum physics course. I started studying that, too, and I was able to understand a lot of this stuff. And so I dug real deep into it, and I got to the understanding that we're living in a multi dimensional universe and there's at least 11 dimensions otherwise the universe would collapse each dimension is a 90 degree angle right above the next one compactified so they're sitting right on top of us so within less than a plunk unit of space above you there's another dimension that actually exists with a whole nother universe happening simultaneously while we're sitting right here wild that's hard to fathom it's hard to it's hard to fathom so right here where we're sitting right now there's a whole nother dimension of of a whole nother universe happening life taking place yes right in the same space that we are right 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 here right here where we are right here vast too vast just as vast as ours is vast and uh from higher dimensions they experience time differently time really doesn't exist the past present and the future happen all at once so somebody for example uh, from the fifth dimension would look at us and they'd be able to see uh, so imagine us in this building here, but imagine when I first walked in and imagine us in here and imagine me like in the bathroom or something, they'd be able to see us in all the different rooms The different rooms represent different time frames mm. of existence within this structure. So they could see the past, present and future at the same time. Uh, you know, so it's 
pretty cool. Weird stuff starts happening the higher the dimensions you go. So is the idea that when you're in a higher dimension, you can only you can see below lower dimensions, but you can't see dimensions above you? Exactly, unless you have the capability of matching. First, you have to obtain the frequency of a higher dimension and then match that frequency to be able to walk in. So Match the frequency. Yeah, so for example, um, okay, my hand is stopped now by this table, right? right? Why is it stopped? I'm not really touching the table. There's repulsion going on. Electromagnetic repulsion between the electrons in my hand is repelling the electrons in the table. You don't really touch anything. Now, if I can match the subatomic frequency of the atoms in this chunk of wood here on this table I could, with my hand, I would be able to pass my hand right through this table unscathed. Why? Because atoms are 99.999% empty space. Nothing is really here. Everything is only a light wave slowed down to a particular frequency. And so if you can match frequencies, you can merge with things. You can walk through walls and all that kind of stuff. The things that seem paranormal could be advanced beings have tapped into some type of uh, understanding of how to match different frequencies in our dimension and appear apparitional or, or, or paranormal. But in true reality, they could just be taking a peek in. And how do we come to the understanding that these higher dimensions exist? Like, what is the most basic evidence that we have of this? Quantum physics uh, proves it. See, when we look into the quantum world, everything changed. In standard physics is where we have where we are right now, in the large side of physics. But the smaller you go, the more weird things get. We find that particles transphase in and out of existence, and they go to different dimensions. We even know now that some of our synapses of our thoughts in our brain phase out of this dimension and they go somewhere else and then they come back again. And this has all been tracked and traced through the understanding of quantum mechanics and quantum physics mm -hmm. and understanding that dimensions exist. The biggest way that we made a model of this is we, we figured out how to create something called quasi crystals. Now these quasi crystals are these multidimensional crystals. We actually created an eighth dimensional quasi crystal. We created this. Yes, we and created. How did we create it? We created a laboratory okay. using different technologies. And then from that eighth dimensional quasi crystal, it casts a it casts a shadow of itself down to a fourth dimensional quasi crystal, which then casts down a shadow which creates a sphere. So we know that the the universe is most likely the shadow of a higher dimension. It's crazy stuff. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> mind-bending. <laughs> We're living in a light matrix, which is actually a light matrix, which is a shadow of a high, a much higher dimension. And so we know this because they created the, the, these crystals, these quasi-crystals, and when they put them at different angles, they cast shadows sometimes. Even. What do these crystals look like? Do you, so you look up the quasi-crystals, yeah. They look like, um, have you ever seen a Dinkra codes? Adinkras. I think I heard you talk about this yeah. before. No, they I, look like Adinkra the symbols, mathematical symbols, but in the third dimensional time space. Uh, and so, if you take them and throw, pull them out into a three dimensional, third dimensional time space, mm -hmm. they look like these um, lines that are connected with these nodes, like that. You see, <clears throat> quasi crystals. This is a quasi crystal. Yeah. And so, it's an ordered structure, but it's not periodic. And uh, it's got a it's crystalline formed pattern. atomically, yeah, in a manner somewhere between the amorpha solids of glass of glasses, special forms of metals and other minerals, as well as common glass and the precise pattern of crystals. Yeah, huh. if you type in eighth, if you put eighth dimensional, 
quasi crystal. Uh, you'll should see some research that it come looks up on that. like uh, what you look into a kaleidoscope. It's a fractal. It's all about fractal. We live in a fractal holographic universe. The quasi crystal is a fundamental basis of the fractal holography that we're living in. We're fully immersed in it, so we can't detect it, but we're living in a light matrix. And that's what the Adinkra codes also prove. Okay, explain the Adinkra codes. What is that exactly? So, Professor James Gates Jr., University of Maryland, former uh, scientific advisor to President Obama, just to give you, like, this guy, he's not just like a jackpot or something. He's like okay. a real dude, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he put together a team of the most incredible supersymmetry and theoretical physicists in the world, mm -hmm. like the top brains in the world on this. And they started analyzing what is the ether of space time. What is this soup that we're living in that we're inhabiting this universe? What is it? What is it made of? What is, what's powering it? They discovered something called Adinkra codes, which go back to the ancient Dogon tribe from Mali, Africa. The original inhabitants of the land of Camden moved to Mali later after they were thrown, thrown out, uh, taken over at one point. But they still kept this ancient knowledge in, in, in Mali about these Adinkra codes and they would draw these patterns. Well, he discovered that these patterns are actually mathematical codes. And these are not just any mathematical code. There goes one there. They're actually the codes that describe the ether of space-time itself. They're error-correcting codes, the same exact codes that run our search engines and web browsers that we're using right now to look at the image. There's coding behind that screen that runs this, what we just did. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It's the same code that runs the universe. So we discovered that we're living in a, that we're living in a programmed light matrix. There's a software programmer that has written this code. Austin, pull up more images of this. There's all different types of images. There you go. See now that you see that one there, right there. That's a quasi. That looks like a lot like a quasi crystal. If you were to shrink it down and put a whole bunch of them in one location, it looks very similar to a quasi crystal. So these are Dinkra codes, uh, and you can see the colorful one that was up there. Um, these are depicting the nature of reality. Wow. And they actually are mathematical programming code. They're a special type of code, though. They're error-correcting code. The same type that, that Google browser is running on is the same thing that runs the universe. Error-correcting codes. Yeah. And what, what do we gain from all of this knowledge? Like, what does this tell us? And where do we, where do we take this? Like, what is the, obviously, this is like foundational knowledge right. for us. But, like, where do you see it going? Well, if you understand it, we're living in a fractal holographic light matrix it doesn't mean we're not real. It just means that there is a creator or creators that were living in something that was created, just like the ancient texts and all the scribes and, and biblical texts and everything else says. But it tells us, wow, this is the method of the creation. Now we're getting closer to understanding what we really are. We understand now that consciousness isn't made inside this avatar body, that the avatar body doesn't even exist, that consciousness is a stream of something you know, coming from somewhere else and it's being mm. picked up in this matrix with this coding. If you took all the humans on earth, there's 8 billion humans on earth. If I took all 8 billion humans and removed the empty space between their atoms, I can fit every human into a sugar cube. One sugar cube can hold all 8 billion of us. Really? Yeah. All eight, all the atoms of 8 billion people on earth. You could take, you could see atoms are empty space. So if you take the empty space out, you collapse it into one sugar cube. All 8 billion can fit in one sugar cube. So what does that That's mean? Wild. Who, what, who, who, what's here? There's only one consciousness, it seems. And it looks, it's like a radio station that's transmitting out a frequency from a higher dimension. Our avatar bodies pick up that frequency. 
you're 99.1, I'm 99.2, he's 99.3, but it's still coming from the same source. And so we're all coming from the same source. It's like the universe has found a way to live subjectively through multiple entities, but not even through entities, even through objects that we consider to be man-made because every atom we know now in quantum physics is also conscious. Does this give any credence to the simulation theory? Absolutely. Yes, we're living in a simulation. This is an actual simulation. What we've done now with the uh, the video game uh, No Man's Sky, it's got 80 quadrillion worlds in there. It's a never-ending game created by, I think, 12 college students. fits on one DVD, and they're going to add AI into it, which means that the beings and the animals and everything else in there, they're going to become conscious. Also, the other video game... Um, that they have where you have the people walking around and everything else. I forgot the name of the game now. But the Sims. The Sims. Yeah. The Sims, they're, they're talking about adding consciousness to the Sims and adding AI in there. So eventually these Sims are going to start asking questions. Who are we? Where, where do we come from? What is this that we're living in this construct? Is there a big bang? Yeah, the big bang is when we hit the power button and turned you on. That's the big bang. Mm. That's when everything went out. Yeah. So, you know, they can then maybe even begin to write programs in the Sims program to create their own universe. So there's multiple layers of reality. I don't think we're even close to base reality. Isn't it so crazy that it was only 30 years ago that we only had that pong game with the two <laughs> ball, the balls and the two sticks. Oh my God. And now look at what we have 30 years. Crazy. I got the original Atari 2600. My uncle bought it for me. He came down from New York. He was a police officer in New York. The only most expensive gift I ever got, which is why I still have it today in a closet in a box. He bought that thing, and I played that thing, the Pong and Pac-Man. Yeah. And I played it for a couple of weeks, and I got the little callus in my hand, and I was like, okay, I'm tired. But <laughs> but it was cool, you know? Yeah. Connect to a VHF TV. And then look where we are now. My son turned a video game on. This is a couple of years ago. I was at his apartment, and I thought it was an actual NFL game. I didn't know it was yes. a video game. Yes. I play, I play video games all the time. And I, I play Madden yeah. and uh, NBA. And, yeah. and these games literally look like, if you haven't seen those games before, they look just like the real game right. on TV. It's right. indistinguishable. Wild. And then now with like with VR, like the Oculus and, yeah. and uh, the stuff that Facebook's doing, it's right. pretty wild and augmented wild. reality. Yeah. If you, yeah, if you, like Elon says, if you assume any rate of advancement mm -hmm. compounding over time, yeah. just in a hundred years, mm -hmm. there's going to be, in less than a hundred years, there's gonna, oh, the yeah. video games are going to be completely 100% indistinguishable from reality. Yes, that's true. And so the human mind is so easily fooled. It just takes program input. So the human mind is encased in darkness. It doesn't even know what's going on out here, but it has friends, sight, Hearing, smell, touch, feel, all those five senses. It sends the friends out. The friends collect data. Now, my friends, the, my brain's friends, touch, doesn't know what this is, doesn't know what's going on here. But it combines with the data from the eye. The eye sees it, doesn't know what it is. But the eye and the, and the hands send a signal back to the brain, send data packets back to the brain. Mm -hmm. The brain then sorts it out and then creates a hologram of what's here. And then I'm navigating through the third dimension based on a hologram from data packets. Right. And the universe is doing the same thing. There's one consciousness which has divided itself into Googles of entities. Me and you are one of them. And it's experiencing itself. We are the sensory perception for the well, universe. We, have, we, we only have eyeballs, nose, mouth, skin. We can only, our, our constructed yeah. physical bodies can only observe so many dimensions. Right. 
well, wonder what it would take for us to be able to observe a different dimension. Well, like, we what, would it, what, are we thinking about it the right way? Would it be a physical alteration to our body or what? Well, it would be, it would be uh, scary because we can't even see, we only see 1% of the light spectrum here. If we saw more than 1% of the light spectrum, we'd freak out. There's so much going on all the, in the multi-spectrum, in the ultraviolet, in the infrared, in the gamma ray range, in the x-ray range. We would freak out. There's stuff going on all around us as we speak. Billions of waves and, and frequencies moving around us that we, we, we would be able to see if we had the eyes for it. And I think that uh, 1% is all we can handle. That's <laughs> with Maybe. you. Yeah. More than 1% it would be a lot. Yeah, it'd be cool to have some x-ray vision or something like that. Yeah. But, but you add it all together at once, and now you're talking about multiple dimensions. Well, the human avatar body can't even get to the dimension because we're a third-dimensional substructure. We'd have to create the technology to phase shift into um, a, a, a body mm-hmm. of some type, whatever type that would possibly be, to even ascend to a higher dimension. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, going back to the simulation theory, it seemed like if we were in a simulation, of course – only like people like Elon Musk would believe that right. because if you were playing a character in a simulation, you would want to play somebody like Elon Musk. Yeah. Right. You wouldn't want to play, you know, <laughs> Joe Blow working at the hardware store. Right. You people like with, with fascinating, interesting lives, doing crazy things with unlimited money that right. could do any, anything they wanted. Yeah. That would be the most enticing player to be in a simulation. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, but what I think is happening here is the reason why it's not specific, like a game that you can, you control it in a certain level. But what's cool, I think, is that the universe itself is using us to figure out what it's like to be Billy Carson, what it's like to be you, what it's like to be this microphone, what it's like to be a person that's living impoverished, what's it like to be a person that's living rich, what it's like to be an inventor, an explorer, what is it like to be all these different things, mm-hmm. what is it like to be a blade of grass, what is it like to be a rock? And I think all that data is being transmitted back to source in real time. And what is, what is, what do you think the source is? Another, is you think the source is like, are we a simulation inside of a simulation inside of a simulation or are there actual biological beings that are controlling the simulation? That's a great question. I can only go by hermetic principles as above, so below. And so if you look at the way the universe or the multiverse would be set up, it's almost like cells in a human body. Because you look at the cells in our body, it's like a multiverse inside of us. Mm -hmm. And so it's like we're living in also uh, a multiverse which which is full of cells each universe could be a cell uh you know, it's just really amazing so it, it could be biological it, it could be that we're in a biological body it could be that we're in uh, a software program i mean there's so many possibilities it's almost endless but i do know that this fundamental basis of what we're living in is light because everything even the, the, if you take an atom out of this phone and then smash it it's going to give off light it's just slowed down light waves to a, little, to a slower frequency. Mm. Everything that exists, I mean, everything in the third dimension, everything you could think of is only a light wave. Matter of fact, due to wave particle duality, everything only exists as a wave first and then collapses into what we appear to be the illusion of solid matter later. Like right now, you're here. Your home exists as a wave of potentials. It doesn't even exist as a solid structure. Now, if somebody sees it, it collapses instantaneously into a solid structure known as your house. Mm-hmm. Your house has, has a specific frequency because of the way the atoms were stacked. So it always collapses into the same structure. Hmm. When you get around that corner and you finally make it home and you see it, that's when it collapses back into your house again. Everything, who you, everything you can't see exists as waves, just like in a video game. The next frame only appears when you need it to. If you go this way, 
the screen doesn't go anywhere. It's the same screen. The next, the next light, the next light matrix moves into your view so you can play the video game. You go back this way mm-hmm. again, it just keeps moving. We're living in that type of a simulation. Where do you think, uh, human existence is as far as tech, where do you think technology ends up in the next 100 to 200 years? Like, what yeah. do you think? Ha- do you have a, an optimistic view of this or do you yeah. have sort of a dystopian view of this? Or where do you think, where do you think we go? What do you think happens with artificial intelligence yeah. and machines and the human species? I'm pretty optimistic, actually, uh, just based on what I know from research and cycles. It looks like we're in the Tetra Yuga, according to the Yuga cycles. We're on the beginning of a silver age, heading back toward a golden age. We got a few thousand years to go to get there, but it's going to be a great ride. We're on the side of the circle of the cycle that we're going to see a lot of advancements, lifespans extended, great technologies happening. Right now in private space, they are 300 years ahead of the the civilians, 300 years ahead right now. Wow. Right now. You're talking about like private companies like uh, Raytheon and Lockheed and Boeing. And Tesla and all those, well, SpaceX. Mm -hmm. So how how do I know this? I own a company called First Class Space Agency. Look it up. It's a company in Florida. It's now almost almost 10 years old now. It's a tech company. And it's not, we don't launch any vehicles, but we are doing R&D, research and development. And different types of propulsion systems, different types of generators, radiation-hardened computer circuit chips, and all that kind of cool stuff. Uh, Deep space communication devices, these kind of things. So with that, I get access to the space symposiums. Now, in the space symposium, I get access to private space. And in there, those talks are uh, uh, non-disclosed. However, I can tell you 300 years ahead of the general population. Okay? That's That's my company right there. Wow. 300 years ahead. And so... Uh, whatever you could think of has already been done. The problem is they're locked up in these private projects. But what I see gonna, that's going to happen is within the next 200 years, 300 years, a lot of that stuff is going to become more publicly available, publicly accessible. A lot of these systems that we're under are now, these these these, these um, old systems that should be done away with are going to fall apart. Nothing can persist forever. I've studied history for so long. I've never seen an empire maintain and sustain forever right rome had almost the whole planet look where they are now you see uh and we're just going to visit their old coliseum now united states i love you united space is the first of its kind too yes not going to persist forever there'll be something else that'll come that'll be better but it won't be this you think it'll be better i think it'll be better i think it'll be better and so i think we're moving look we a hundred years ago we were a horse buggy and carriage now we're putting remote control cars on other planets and moons. We even have a Voyager out in intergalactic space now, left our Kuiper belt, right? I think that within 100, 100 to 200 years, you're going to see advancements and an awakening on this planet of human beings to the point where we'll realize this technology is to free the burden of mankind. And then we are then free to not be homeless and not be struggling and financially because we lost our jobs. But we are the, the, the robots and the technology freed us to be who we are, mm. to work in places because we want to work there. No income. Your status in life is how good you are at what you do, how well you help others. People will be free to travel, to do arts and crafts and learn and study and research. And you'll have people working because they're passionate about what they're doing. One of the things Robin Hanson, I don't know if you've ever seen the, sh- the movie or the, the show on HBO called Westworld. Yes. Oh, I love it. One of the things that he said to me uh, about that show is one of the main d- downfalls of the, the idea of the show is that if 
we got to that point where we could create these human-like robots that had human cognition, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be using them for theme parks. We right. would be using them for work, for labor. Right. There's like tr- the, the biggest part of the world economy is labor. We would use yep. them to like take these jobs. Absolutely. That's exactly what we would do. It makes It just makes sense. It just makes absolute sense. And you free the world up, you free mankind up to then be the best that they can possibly be as a human being. Mm. Uh, and I think that's where we, we're headed eventually. Yeah, it just seems like it's just hard right now where we're at right now. Like it's, it's such a weird time we're in where everybody is so wrapped up in like politics. I know. Oh, man, it's crazy. No one can think outside of yeah. the fucking listen the the <laughs> politics left versus right versus it's these too cl- much. I was a little kid. Jimmy Carter was the president. And the voting was coming up. This is how I'm aging myself now, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'd say to uh, my mom, I said, how long are you adults going to fall for this trick? And I start laughing. And she goes, what are you talking about? I said, this voting trick. She goes, well, explain it. I said, okay, look at where we live. Do you really think that this guy didn't change anything? Do you think the next guy's going to change something? The guy before him didn't change this. This was the same way it was. Now Jimmy's here. I said, whoever else is coming next. It's going to be the same thing. The hood's going to be the hood. It's never going to right. change. So I saw right away, man, something is a disconnect between the politics and real change in the world. It's not happening. And I think that we'll see the poly tricksters, poly tricksters fall away. Uh, the system we have, it just can't, it can't sustain forever. It just won't. It can't. It's impossible. Uh, and something new will arise eventually at some point in the future. It just seems like it's such a distraction yeah. from like what could make life better. And right. it, it seems like it, if that wasn't there and you know, the problem too is the the incentives, the money, there's That's so the much money in it. The money you see, you have to first to move forward as a species on this planet. We have to take capitalism out of a lot of things and that will scare a lot of people, but it's the truth. We have to do it. We have to, we can't have capitalism in uh, politics. You can't have capitalism in healthcare. You can't have it in, in the prison system. You mm. can't have all the, you know, you can't have it in the school system. All this stuff that's driven by capitalism is failing tremendously because it's the people second, the money first. And we'll do whatever. We'll manipulate them however we can, even locking people up that don't even deserve to be locked up. We've proved that already. One one judge just got, what, 40 years for for uh, putting, I don't know, 100 kids in jail for mm-hmm. mo- taking it for, for money. Right. And he's just the, the tip of the iceberg. You know, so we have all this going on. Uh, because capitalism is involved. You can't have capitalism in healthcare. I mean, come on. And so yeah. it's destroying It's destroying everything. Healthcare is one of the biggest fucking yeah. problems. When you start to dig below the surface oh, man. W- with insurance companies Ooh. and big pharma and oh, all the things God. that are going on, it's just disgusting. It's horrible. It's an it's, it's, it's atrocity to mankind. But what's one of the most foundational thing? one of the most foundational aspects of human beings is greed and lust and and competition and you know it starts with programming though you see so right now we have epigenetic programming inside of our bodies me and you the last 15 to 20 years of our ancestors their memories and their coding is in our body through epigenetics Mm -hmm. And, and the epigenetics came out about 20 30 years ago and they laughed at bruce lipton for this and now it's taught in every university that it's real they've done real scientific studies showing that we're operating and thinking and functioning off of past memories from ancestors. Right. And so all that programming needs to be re- begin to be rewritten. We have to start 
first rewriting our own DNA and our own epigenetics and clearing our past traumas and then teaching the next generation the proper way. That's where it's going to begin with the future. So it's a big That's process. Scary. It's a big process. But you know what's happening? More and more people are waking up. I remember talking about the aliens I saw or the UFO I saw, I saw in my backyard in the bushes with two friends because I was afraid for anybody else to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Years went by. Then we started exchanging VHS tapes. Then from VHS tapes with conspiracies and UFO stuff on it. Then it went to, to cassette tapes. Then it went to uh, c- uh, CDs. Then it went to DVDs. Then it went to web forums. Then it went to blogs. Now it's on TV. Now I'm on TV talking about this stuff. And I'm on big podcasts like yours talking. So I've seen the gradual acceptance of this. And now the Pentagon saying, oh, yeah, these things are real. You know, and, and NASA saying, there's water on Mars. So eventually there's going to be a point. Now we have such short lifespans. To us, it seems like it's taken forever. But from a geological standpoint, that time scale, we haven't even been here for a blink of an eye yet. So, and if it takes a thousand, two thousand years, we're in the beginning. uh, We're the pioneers of the movement for awakening on this planet, you know, and even just allowing me to even come on here and talk about this kind of stuff. It's just massive because you're going to give me a voice and let other people hear something that maybe not everything they agree with, but there may be something I said today that's going to make them want to go look something up. Mm. And that triggers a spark and that drops a seed. And exponentially over time, what what's happening here is we're traveling into the future. When I speak on these kind of shows and I do these, these TV shows and documentaries, I travel into the future with my consciousness and I alter the future reality in the third dimension by things I'm saying right now because I, I, the outcome is going to be the outcome that I'm trying to collapse into reality. And so I really do believe that long term, there's going to be a significant change. Right now, human beings are, are, are crawling. And eventually we're going to learn how to walk. But even when we start walking, it's going to look bleak for a month because we're going to fall. We will fall down. A baby will plop on its butt and the parents go, oh, you know, and the baby cries, but it gets back up again and it walks. Eventually it learns how to walk. What is walking? Controlled falls. That's actually the definition of walking. It's a Mm -hmm. controlled fall. And when we learn how to control our fall, that's when we get to the golden age. Wow. Fascinating. Billy, I, I very much appreciate you coming on here and talking about this stuff. Thank um, you. People that are watching watching and listening, where can they find more of your work and what you're doing? Uh, just go to Forbidden Knowledge with the number four, ForbiddenKnowledge.com. Everything is there, all my social media, my website, my YouTube, my TV network, uh, all the work that I'm doing currently and everything else, all the tours and everything I'm doing, it's all on ForbiddenKnowledge.com with the number four. That's incredible, man. Thank and you. uh, your your Instagram page, again, is one of my favorite Instagrams to follow. I, Thank I, you, I sit there for hours and watch your videos. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Incredible. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks again. All right. Goodbye, world. Peace.